comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 62. This episode is brought to you by Princeless from Action Lab Entertainment. Action Lab Entertainment is proud to present Princeless, which tells the story of Adrian, one princess who's tired of waiting to be rescued. Join Adrian and her guardian dragon, Sparky, in an action adventure designed specifically for those who are tired of waiting to be rescued and who are ready to save themselves. Written by Jeremy Whitley, with stunning art by M. Goodwin, and featuring a backup story by Jeremy and D.E. Belton, Princeless is a swashbuckling miniseries that will appeal to children of all ages. Princeless, who needs Prince Charming? Save yourself. Princeless is a comic book miniseries available for pre-order this month at dcbservice.com, tfall.com, or your local retailers, or various online retailers with an order code of August 110748. Additional information and release schedule can be found at actionlabcomics.com. Once again, that's actionlabcomics.com. During Matinee Idols Month last year, we did a best of 80s action movie uh, episode. It was a two-parter uh, between myself, Matt Burden, and then later on we were joined by Donnie Salvo. And due to the popularity of Matinee Idols Month, we are back once again with a best of action movies episode. But this time, all these films take place in the 90s. Now, Donnie, Donnie couldn't make it for this segment this time, but uh, he does apologize, and he will return to the PKD Black Box soon. But the other member of the 80s action movie episode is back. He is the co-host of Matinee Idols, the host of the Burden's World, Burden's World podcast. He is also one of the founders of FPW, that's Future Pro Wrestling, if you didn't know. You heard him on the Planet of the Apes retrospective. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Matt Burden. Matt, how you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm always good. I'm always good with an intro like that. I feel like you should stand. It, it, you should stand at my place of work and open the door for me, and 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 say that as I walk through the door every single day of my life. I, I love it. No, I'm fine. I'm good, man. I'm, I haven't been burnt to the ground. I haven't had anything stolen from my house. So I'm a happy Londoner. All good. Uh, <laughs> as we sit, I'm very. I'm very surprised to still have a laptop. So um, no, I'm. I'm cool, man. I'm. I'm good. I'm looking forward to sitting back and talking about scarily one of my favorite decades in cinema <laughs> well i'm glad that uh your family is okay from the riots and as long as you don't call me virgil i don't have a problem holding the door for you okay <laughs> you know i don't want to wear that i don't want to wear that stupid suit <laughs> i don't want to be nobody's lackey I'll, I'll hold the door for you because you're my homie and i'll let you in i'll say my words and then i'll bounce so but as long as you don't call me virgil we cool you see, the thing is, if I do call you Virgil, then when I skip companies, you end up in the NWO. You know, it's it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. So, we, it, it, you did a wrestling episode already. This is gonna this will get complicated if we if we go down that route. <laughs> yes, it, yes, it will. Listen, I guarantee I won't call you Virgil. I swear to God. Okay, cool. Well, well, everything is fine then. But we are not here to talk about wrestling sidekicks. We are here talk about some of our favorite action movies of the 1990s and if you go through like any type of database for films during the 90s especially action films there were a slew I, I really think that the 90s 
even for as much as the 80s gave us on like A films, uh, B films, uh, you know, Z, D, F uh, quality of action films, we had a slew of action films in the 90s. And after doing some research, I've compiled my list of uh, favorite action movies, and Matt has compiled his list as well. So we're just going to go ahead and get this underway. Uh, Matt, would you like to talk to us about one of your favorite uh, action movies of the 1990s? You used to be on the Starship Enterprise, okay? You got a little bit bored of being just the smart teenager, so you decided to go to a big prep school, but didn't expect Lewis Gossett Jr. to be there, uh, or a hobbit, and then you get killed halfway through. I'm talking about Toy Soldiers. That wasn't even on my list. That is a film that I completely forgot about. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Toy Soldiers. Yeah, man. One of the constants for me anyway, and especially during the 90s, was anything that was a Die Hard clone, I would be there. So if you take Die Hard and you stick it in a school, a shopping mall, a boat, a train, a bus, plane again with Liz Hurley... If you package Die Hard in any way, I would be there. I would. I will critique you, but I'll always turn up. But for me, Toy Soldiers worked so well. And because, I mean, it came out in 1991. Um, so for me, I would have been just slightly younger than, you know, the protagonists of, of the movie. And, and the whole plot of the film is that it's um, a very expensive school, um, way off in the countryside somewhere. And uh, kind of the, um, I suppose, the rich of America send their children there, send their boys there to be taught. Um, and so where better a place for a group of highly organized terrorists to land than on the roof of this prep school and take it hostage and, and kind of hold these kids um, to ransom but it's got all of those diehard staples that I absolutely love you know you, you do have a decent villain he's not it, it's it's Alan Rickman with a ponytail basically um, and he's got, he's got a number two who's quite good with gadgets and has a special gun just like <laughs> just like diehard um, and you've got Sean Austin running around as kind of the bad boy of the school who you know gets done for blowing up lockers and uh, and playing pranks here and there but he's the you know whippersnapper that's gonna that's gonna get these guys and yeah you've got Will Wheaton running around as well and he he does he, he actually uh, spoilers um, he dies halfway through the movie mm. uh, um, which I always found quite surprising but I, I love it Lewis Gossett Jr. as well was hilarious in this movie you know no he he didn't just do poor Top Gun ripoffs Iron Eagle 5 wasn't quite the success he thought so we we do we do have toy soldiers but no I, I absolutely love it if you haven't seen it um, check it out because it's it's not all that easy to to track down I think only one I think it's only been it's only had like one DVD release so I I, I kind of uh, not that I put it off, but it's just not one that you walk into a Walmart or an Asda's or you know a Target or a Tesco's and it's there all the time. You do have to kind of track it down, kind of like Judgment Night. You know, you would have to do a bit of digging to get it. But Toy Soldiers is good, man. I I, I love it. I think with a film like Toy Soldiers, it was rated R in 1991. Now, granted, in today's movie market, to even do a film like that because Hollywood is so scared about not being able to fill seats. That film, that movie, the new version of Toy Soldiers would definitely be, be a PG-13 film. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, over here it was a 15, so it was, it was, um, 
yeah, it was kind of targeted or it, it was made available to, I guess, maybe the kind of people that were just outgrowing what they maybe perceived the movie to be. So for me, it was just right. You know, I was probably just a little bit too young to buy this on video. So I probably got one of my friends who had already got facial hair to go into the shop and buy it for me. It's so sad, isn't it? Everyone else is buying porn and cigarettes. And I'm like, will you buy toy soldiers for me? But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I loved it. But again, you know, it's, it was... Um, it's it's got all of those elements that 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 kind of diehard got me got me jazzed for. So uh, so every day of the week, if you if you stick terrorists and uh, and kind of a a team of people who are up against the odds in into the mix, I'm I'm going to be there. But um, yeah, definitely. If you have not checked it out, definitely check it out. Toy Soldiers. Now, do you feel that Toy Soldiers is better than like say for instance an '80s movie like Red Dawn? Uh, I, I would pick I would pick Toy Soldiers over Red Dawn, but then again, I'm probably because I've got I've just got more of an affinity for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I would actually I would I would I would pick it. Oh. But then that yeah, that's it. It's just that hostage thing. I don't know. I'd pick it over Navy Seals every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Well, I think I think any, any of our films you would <laughs> that we have listed today are going to be better than Navy Seals. Oh, <laughs> film was released in April of 95. This film was actually the movie that got me to go back to movie theaters. Uh, I was in a period of time in my life where uh, movies weren't on my to-do list. You know, going to the movies every week to see what's see what's out, that wasn't really my thing at the time. I was in college, I was doing a bunch of other stuff, and movies weren't that big of a deal for me. And then one weekend, this movie comes out, my friend Chris um, got a hold of me, he's like, yo, let's go to the movies. I was like, I don't know, man. He's like, come on, man. Just just roll with me. I'm like, okay, cool. So we go, and we go see this movie with Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. The film is called Bad Boys. I went to go see this and like just had a blast, had a ball with it. And, you know, it was, to me, it was funny, had a lot of action. And little did I know, this would be the first major cinematic debut of director Michael Bay. So all those Michael Bay shots you see in movies like Transformers and all that other stuff he's done since then, that all started with Bad Boys. The synopsis of Bad Boys is such, because Martin Lawrence and Will Smith are cops, uh, Marcus Burnett and Mike Lowry. Uh, Mark is played by Martin, Mike played by Will Smith. What happens is, is that evidence in the form of $100 million worth of heroin has been stolen by French drug kingpin Fouché. And two Miami cops, Marcus Burnett and Mike Lowry, team up to recover the loot and the only witness, Julie Mott, who is played by Tia Leone. Uh, problems develop, and Mike is forced to impersonate Marcus and move in with Marcus's wife, Teresa, and family. Meanwhile, Marcus moves into Mike's bachelor pad. While on the trail of the loot, Julie is kidnapped by Fouché, and then car chases ensue amidst Marcus's and Mike's bantering. Chemistry between Martin Lawrence and Will Smith that sells the film. And not only that, you know, this isn't the over, like the overblown, you know, Michael Bay that a lot of people see today. This is like just original Michael Bay stuff, and it's just fun. It's your it's your typical R-rated action film. Not only that though, but there are a lot of people in this movie. I mean, like I said before, you got Martin Lawrence, you got Will Smith, Tia Leone. Um, let's see, you also have Mark Hellenberger from CSI. When people didn't really know who she was, but she's in the film. Joe Pantoliano, the, the, the guy who played um, the guy from the Daredevil movie. He played uh, the uh, the detective, didn't he? Um, well, the news I, reporter. He was the news reporter. That's the news reporter. Ben Urich. Yes, he played Ben Daredevil. Yes, I just really like the chemistry between 
Martin Lawrence and Will Smith. And, you know, they sell the movie. And this was during a period of time where, and I've said this like in previous episodes of the PKD Black Box, when Sony put this movie out, there was this notion of black action films with black leads or films with black leads. So they say blacks can't travel. That's, that's what it was. It was like blacks don't travel, which meant that the films don't sell well overseas. Well, this movie dispersed that myth. And at during, also during this period of time, Will Smith was still doing The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air because Fresh Prince of Bel-Air didn't go off the air until a, like a summer of 96. So he was still doing TV at the time. And Martin Lawrence, if memory serves me right, was still doing Martin. This film was like priced inexpensively. You would never say that about a Michael Bay film now. No, no, no. Um, but this film had a production budget of $19 million. Yeah, that for a friend for a Bay film, that's uber cheap. <laughs> but once again, he had just come off filming commercials and videos, music videos, before he did this movie. So a film for $19 million, it grossed $141 million worldwide. Eventually, years later, you got a sequel. The funny thing is about this movie is that this movie, script-wise, went through a load of rewrites. It went through a load of production, like a production development. When this film was was originally conceived, many years before it even was put into production, the original leads for the film were going to be like Dana Carvey and John Lovitz. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it would have been a completely different film, and I'm sure it went through a ton of rewrites before it got to the point it got to by the time it was actually produced and put together. I really want to see that now. I don't. I want to... Oh, no, no, no. I want to see that now, how they... Like like John Lovitz at the age he is now. Um, <laughs> and don't it... I would love it. Get out of my way. I want to... Oh, it would be hilarious. I'd love so it. So that, 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 that only tells you how long this film had been in and, out, in and out of development hell before it actually came to light and actually something good came from it. Because normally films that are in development hell for more than five years normally have a tendency to suck when they come out well if you think about how long that's been in that had been in development lethal weapon 2 came out in 1989 and that was when like the buddy buddy cop thing was was at its peak so by 95 it was kind of we've we've been here we've done that we've we've done it's so difficult to talk about films now because i know that I, it's like a minefield i might mention a movie that's on your list so i don't want to do that it's it's michael bay Will Smith and Martin Lawrence doing Lethal Weapon the only way they know how, and just having a you know a hell of a lot of fun doing it. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You you couldn't you couldn't make a Michael Bay movie now for God. He, I don't know. He probably just spends that at the bar alone. Um, <laughs> yeah. For the most <laughs> for for an entire shoot. Yeah. But yeah, I I I, no, I don't know. It, it's one. It's not one that I you know visit regularly. I think all too often. If you hear Bad Boys, you, your brain skips forward to Bad Boys 2, and that association puts you off the original, maybe, or a lot of people. Um, but yeah, I, I, maybe I need to go back and, and watch that, because it was a lot of fun. It was it was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. But th that chemistry sells it completely. Oh, well, most definitely. And and I just remember that when I watched the movie, that the thing that, that really caught my eye is if you watch the beginning of the, of the movie, and because and like, you know, they're doing the credits for the, you know, during the opening scene, Martin Lawrence has top billing. Once again, this is before Will Smith officially left television. This is before Will Smith became the megastar that he is. But that's how much bigger Martin Lawrence was than Will Smith. Martin Lawrence had a couple of cinematic uh, comedy, you know, uh, stand-up movies that had been out. Martin was a hit. He had done stuff cinema-wise, you know, so he had a bigger track record than Will Smith had. Will Smith had Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He had a couple of smaller films. Before that, so when did um, Independence Day come out? Then was that his second movie? Independence Day was in uh, July of '96. 
So, so that, yeah, that was a year later. And then after that, that's when, you know, Will was getting top billing after that. But a year before that, Martin Lawrence was a bigger star than Will Smith. Crazy. Very, very crazy. So, and, I want to see oh, go Will Smith in Big Mama's House 4. That's what I want no, to see now. No, no, no. They got to stop. They got to stop these Big Mama's House movies. It's got, it's got to stop. It, it, it really does. You know, the first one, I'm not going to lie. I take it for face value, and, and I'm fine with it. I never watched any of the sequels afterwards because I just, to me, that was a film you do once, and, and, and that's it. Sometimes I, I get tired of, you know, black guy in a, in a fat woman suit, and, you know, movies. I just, it gets it gets tired to me. You know what I mean? I just, uh, but anyway. Yeah, no, it's a good one. Also to say, um, if you, if you want to see multiple clips of a lot of the movies we're going to talk about tonight just watch hot fuzz because in that movie nick frost and simon Pegg sit down and kind of have a nick frost drops so many one-liners from a lot of these movies that we're going to talk about tonight in, in that movie so um that that's just an ode to, to like 1990s action movies also Okay, 1990, we have a former DA troubleshooter comes, he goes back home to find that uh, a Jamaican drug dealing gang has kind of taken over his hometown led by somebody called Screwface and uh, Mr. John Hatcher has to dispatch them in the most gory way he can and break as many arms as he can and, and put his th- thumbs through people's eye sockets and be inaudible and untouchable by the law I'm talking about uh, Steven Seagal in Marked for Death <laughs> yes that, that's that's what we're talking about I recently um, got hold of the, the American not the American version but the original version of this movie because again in the UK it was one that was um, I remember watching it and thinking it was unbelievably violent anyway um, but then I was told that there was uh, this other version and uh, I did manage to, to pick it up and, and, and watch it quite recently but this movie it caters to so many um, kind of I suppose kind of guilty pleasures I mean if you chuck kind of voodoo into a movie I'm a massive live and let die fan so I'm, I'm there um, you've got this kind of Steven Seagal is just being Steven Seagal. I mean, John Hatcher, uh, you might as well just call him Steven Seagal because he's he's the same in every movie. It's the bomber jacket and the very high waistline, waistband and the, the mumbling and there's a fat person crying to get out. And I understand it has got out now if you go onto his website, but he's always he's always been maximum capacity. <laughs> a little bit. But he, the way he goes about dispatching with this, um, dispatching this kind of voodoo drug gang, is just—it's so violent, but also so illegal. He hunts them down, even when they're not causing any problems. Uh, and at one point, the, the best, one of the best scenes in it is he's, he kind of teams up with um, his partner, and I can't remember—I think it's Max. Max, yeah, because Max was played by Keith David. Keith David, there you go. It teams up with Max, and uh, there's a scene where he's, cha- he's, I think he's chasing them through the streets, and they end up in this kind of big shopping mall and in a jewellery store. As a cop, he's got opportunities to kind of take these guys out by maybe shooting them in the leg or, or, or kind of just dispatching them. But they take such, the, him and Max take such pleasure in just decimating these guys and breaking their legs and then shooting them in the face and then just leaving the crime scene. And when you know the, usually there's a rock ballad at the end. It's like, hey. 
we didn't. And then they walk off, not to be prosecuted ever again <laughs> um, <laughs> by the law. But it, it does feature um, Seagal grabbing somebody by the head and forcing his thumbs into their eye sockets, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so. I, yeah. And I believe he rips somebody's arms off and as he falls down the lift shaft I think um, only to land on a spike at the bottom it's unbelievably violent Wait, but um, didn't he cut off the didn't he cut off Screwface's head at the end of the movie I think so but I think Screwface is kind of flailing around with these stumps that used to be his arms because he get they, they kind of almost total recall style they, they, I'm sure they no 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 he picks him up and he breaks his back over his knee Bane style and folds the dude in half and then doesn't he toss him then down a lift shaft only to cut his head off? Yeah. Or am I, or is that some kind of fever dream? I'm sure he breaks some guy's back and folds him in half in this movie. For some reason, There's- for some reason, I always just keep remembering, keep remembering a scene, and I might be absolutely wrong because like when Steven Seagal movies, they all merge into like one glob of of you know just it <laughs> you know of it and so like i get a lot of my cigar movies mixed up i just remember i do remember going to see mark for death in the movie theater because once again my mother wanted to go see it it's 1990 <laughs> i was 15 years old she was like you want to go see mark for death i'm like sure let's go so you know we go it's not crowded and we're watching this and like my mom loves action movies and even she was just like this is really violent for a Seagal movie. <laughs> then you got the you know the stereotypical cool uh, drug dealers, and I swear I remember uh, that there. I can swear unless my mind is playing tricks on me. There was a scene where Screwface is like, "You can't kill me, you can't kill me," and like he'd already been shot and cut and stabbed and everything else. So then he just cut his head off. Oh, do you know what? I've got the breakdown of the final sequence. Are you ready? Here I'm, we go. I'm ready. Here we go. The fight moves to the nightclub where Hatcher kills Screwface's brother by gouging his eyes and blinding him, breaking his back and then dropping him down an elevator shaft in which he gets impaled upon landing. The gang looks at the dead boss and are presumably arrested at the end of the film. So I think there's, the, there's like a cl- not like a clone, but there's he dies and then he comes back unexpectedly, doesn't he? So I think this, this actual little thing here is wrong. It's not Screwface's brother at all. It's kind of this... Um, this other screw faces and also the the movie i think that's one of the first times especially in kind of mainstream cinema anyway um lots and lots of very very um strong um natural uh, jamaican accents as well um because you know they they make no attempt to to kind of hide it or, or or translate or they just let the guys go and just talk how i'm assuming they would talk a lot of movies would either shy away from it not allow them not allow the guys to talk for fear that maybe the audience doesn't understand what's going on or what's being said but they go all out in this movie so i i, I like that it's kind of here's these guys take it on face value let's see what Seagal does with it it's um it's a fun one but again i can't get away from how unbelievably uh, violent it is there's the amount of arm bones popping through you know like he'll he'll take a guy and kind of twist the arm over so that the so that the, his opponent's behind him the arms over Seagal's shoulder and then he'll break it over his shoulder backwards so that it pops through it's just vile but fantastic all at the same time oh, oh yeah well but that i mean but that's once once again it's one of those things you got in those 90 seagal films and like the further you went up you know the further you went the more and more arms would be broken the more necks would be snapped you know the more bone breaks you would see you know go through the skin all that stuff because they just kept pushing that envelope yeah, that that was the 90s it's just they just kept pushing that envelope until somebody said okay we can't do this anymore this is the one thing about the films from the 90s you're not going to see 
see a lot of nowadays is that a lot of these action films we're talking about are R-rated, and they all profited. Um, well, majority of them that we'll talk about profited. Like Bad Boys was rated R. And once again, I really think in today's, with today's Hollywood, that would be PG-13. A lot of folks are scared to make R-rated movies, man. Unless they know it's a horror film, and even horror, some horror films are PG thirteen. Yeah, we. Were, I, I had this conversation today. I went to the cinema to see Rise of the Planet of the Apes with a good friend of mine. I took Joe with me. I took my son with me, because it's twelve A. So if you're under twelve, you know, the, if you're with a parent, you can you can go. And um, he loved it, and, and it was fantastic. But um, there was the there was the trailer for Conan at the 12a but at the end of the movie it doesn't it, it you know it doesn't tell you what certificate it is it doesn't tell you what rating it is and in the cinema in the foyer it says 2bc it says it's still 2b certificated and there's now as far as i know conan is going to be a 15 over here and i and i i was absolutely convinced they would just trim down you know the the sex scenes and trim down the violence and and just make it a 12a but they're actually making it a 15 which i was really surprised about over here anyways and in the 15 so unfortunately it, joe can't go and see so 15 is like i guess the equivalent of a rated r well no there's an 18 as well okay an 18 an 18 with it so we've got three we've got um we've got a a u universal we have a pg which is parental guidance we have a 12a which is parental guidance with an age limit we have a 12 which is absolutely not unless you're over 12 we have a 15 and an 18 so we have six different certificates over here wow yeah i think they've ditched the the kind of 12 on its own now and just made it this 12a thing but there's yeah there's they're just so uh, i don't know they're just so afraid of uh, of of, uh, of offending um over here it's crazy mm. well, i i predict a riot <laughs> well like now here and this is i'm actually surprised but then again this is Lionsgate. Lionsgate does have a tendency to say okay this is the movie and this is how we're going to release it it's rated r Oh, okay. So I'm wondering what the production budget for this Conan actually is because um, I'm sure that had something to do with the rating because if this was like a $150 million film, there's no way that it would have been rated R. The stu- no. a, studio, a studio would be too scared to release an R-rated action film. You know what I mean? Granted, we've had some R-rated comedies gross over 100 plus, 200 plus over the past couple of years. But for the most part, the industry is very scared to make expensive R-rated films. Sure. So, but anyway, I'm I'm, I'm stepping all, all over your shoes. You were talking. No, about no, 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 no. No, absolutely. No, I, I mean, I'm I'm done. I, I I love it. I mean, it it says here the final scene shows Hatcher carrying Charles's body with Max limping next to him before the film ends with Jimmy Cliff's John Crow in the credits. So yeah, again, it's 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 a classic ending of as soon as we're done with the action, that's the end of the film because the action always ties up all the loose ends. There's never kind of a any other scenes. It's just we did it, buddy. Walk off credits. use of kind of voodoo in the movie uh, really makes um, it a, a very memorable Seagal movie um, th- there's there's one more Seagal movie which we may well talk about which is critically and commercially his most successful but amongst the kind of uh, amongst the, the kind of stuff that you'd get in a box set like uh, Hard to Kill and Nico and stuff like that Marked for Death always seems to be the one that's 
uh, the favorite of maybe the martial arts fans because um it's the one that he he i suppose um heavy elements of aikido in that movie um, there's a there's a lot of aikido and there's a lot of arm breaks and lots of um a particular style of martial arts so that this one always seems to be the most popular kind of among in the martial arts crowd i think mm-hmm. and also again you add that voodoo jamaican element as well i think it, it makes it more memorable so i think this is probably one of his i'd say i'd say it's probably his second most popular movie what do you think it, it may it, it may be i know this film wasn't that popular with my mom i know that I, that i do know she was like she was like i don't she's like i don't think all jamaicans know voodoo that she's like i think that's real stereotypical i don't like that at all they're going too far with this voodoo stuff and which made which made me laugh because I never my mom like gets invested into watching a movie and she will let you know if she does not enjoy it and she will let you know if she enjoys it. But she was just like, I, I, I don't like this screw face thing. This is just, I, I think this is just wrong. It's just stereotypical. I don't like mm-hmm. it. But she did like Keith, Keith David's character. She did enjoy that character. But, you know, anytime but anytime to go or break somebody's arm, snap somebody's neck, you know, stuff like that. She was like, OK, I'm good there. I'm, I'm <laughs> so she tried to take the good with the bad to try to make something out of this movie like with, like i said with me it was one of those cigar movies I, like I, I watched it at the movie theater and i haven't seen it since i watched it one time and, wow. and, 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 and you know normally as a as a kid you see a movie and you if you really like it you know you go back you know you try to find it on vhs because you know we in the vhs era during that time and mm-hmm. or or if it's on hbo you watch it again i watched this one one time and i was like i'm good and i never went back and that's no offense to anybody who enjoys the hell you enjoy what you enjoy it was mm-hmm. but for some reason all my friends during that period of time that mark for death came out all my friends would go hang out we watch uh, hard to kill not oh okay we watched that was that was the pizza movie yeah <laughs> yeah that was the pizza movie it was hard to kill don't know why don't know why I watch that movie now and I laugh. I laugh hysterically when I watch that now. But um, it, it's it's funny the way your mind works. You know, in your earlier years, you go back and you look at stuff. Now it's just like, hmm, why? Well, you know, no idea. It's just, just crazy. But anyway, I digress. Do, see, do, do you know what I, I want to see? A, I want to see a Twitter commentary on on Mark for Death from you now. That's what I want to see. Uh, what kind of commentary? <laughs> a Twitter commentary. I want I want 140 characters. What's happening? And in your opinion, how it sucks. Uh, <laughs> No, I didn't snap this accent. I didn't say it sucks. It's no, just, it's, it's just, it. That's one of those. Twitter's no, Twitter's no fun unless you're poking fun. Oh, but you know, you know that, that, that is true. That, 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 I understand. I understand. <laughs> Some people take this shit real seriously. I'm going to move on to one of my f- other favorite '90s action films. And in this film, I know a lot of people hate this movie. So I'm just going to throw that disclaimer out right now. A lot of people hate this movie. How does Donnie feel about this movie? Let's just, just, I just want to get ready i don't know i you know what i think when he listens to this episode he'll either uh, you know tweet to us or he'll like text me and we'll like have to put it in in the show notes or something (laughs) afterwards this film came out in october of 1995 and yet another 95 film released by warner brothers directed by richard donner produced by joel silver dino de laurentis richard donner lauren schuler donner and a bunch of other people a story originally written by the Wachowskis, starring Sylvester Stallone, Antonio Banderas, and Julianne Moore. The film is called Assassins. Yeah. Do you remember this movie? Yeah, man. No, I went and saw it in the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, see, so did I. Uh, yeah. so, so did I. And, you know, we were also during this period of time where, let's see, what, what film was that? Like, uh, I think Antonio Banderas had done Desperado 
bef- yeah. you know, like beforehand. So he was running off of that popularity. Uh, and then, you know, then you saw a couple months later, Assassins. But the story of the film is, is that Stallone plays Robert Rath, who's a uh, assassin who wants to get out of the business because he's like really like just taken aback and haunted um, by the memory of like murdering his own mentor a while, a while ago. Um, he's the type of person who's very quiet and he just keeps to himself. He's on an assignment to kill someone, kill someone when someone else gets to the target before he does. And that person is Antonio Banderas, who plays Miguel Bain, who is also an assassin and is basically batshit crazy. So now Wrath is trying to find out who sent Bane, and at the same time, he has a contract out. Um, well, Wrath does. He has a contract out that would basically be the big payoff, the big job, which in, in which he has to kill like four Dutch buyers and this computer hacker named Electra, who's played by Julianne Moore. And once again, we're in the 90s, and once again, we have people talking about computers and stuff, and this Hollywood operating system stuff, when it comes to like cracking things, is hilarious. But anyway, basically, he's supposed to kill Electra. He can't. He, he can't do that. But, you know, Miguel, um, Miguel Bain takes out the four Dutch buyers who are actually Interpol agents and Wrath, you know, like I said, has a change of heart, doesn't kill Electra. It's insane. And then it ends up being Stallone versus <clears throat> Stallone versus uh, Antonio Banderas. You know, the film is contrived. It's got plenty of issues, but I still enjoy it thoroughly for, for what it's worth. Now, this film was not successful. It made more money, more money overseas than it did in the States. When it came out, it debuted at number two in the box office. It only grossed like 30 million in the U.S. and another like 50 plus overseas. And this film had been through like a bunch of changes and adjustments before it even got in front of a camera. The screenplay was by, you know, Larry and Andy uh, Wachowski, and they sold this script for a million bucks. During this period of time, they also sold the script to The Matrix for also for like, I think like about a million dollars. And both those scripts were bought by Joel Silver. What happened was, was that Joel Silver, Joel Silver went to Richard Donner and said, look, here's a box of cash because he got a lot to direct this movie. Here's a box of cash. I want you to direct Assassins. We got Stallone. We got, you know, Antonio Banderas. He's an up-and-comer. You know, we got Julianne Moore. We got it all worked out. So let's do it. And so Donner's like, yeah, I'll, I'll direct it, but I want a script rewrite because I want to, like, you know, uh, tone, down, tone down the violence a bit, and I want to make Stallone's character more sympathetic to the audience. So then they bring in a guy by the name of uh, Brian Hegeland, who did a rewrite, and he earned co-screener credit for that. So then the Wachowskis got mad that you know Richard Donner and his crew got somebody to rewrite the story, so they wanted their name off the movie. Writers Guild wasn't, wasn't having it. Later on, Joel Silver apologized to the, you know, to the Wachowskis and basically offered them the chance to direct The Matrix. Huh. So... So because of that, we end up getting The Matrix directed by the Wachowskis. So The Matrix could have been an entirely different film if the Wachowskis didn't direct it. It's just, it's kind of weird how these things fall into place. So what you're saying is we should be grateful for the assassins? Um, yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess because The Matrix we could have got beforehand may have been completely different and possibly worse or maybe even greater. Who knows? But also other things, there are a lot of people that were considered for the role of Robert Rath. Um, Let's see here. There's Schwarzenegger, uh, Michael Douglas, 
a Sean Connery. Let's see who like in people. Let's see, and, and the people that were offered the part of Miguel Bain, uh, Woody Harrelson, Christian Slater, Tom Cruise. So this film went through a bunch, a bunch of hands and a bunch of rumors, but I like it. I do, I do like it. Like I said, it is contrived, and but it's and this was during the period of time where Stallone was kind of like I was almost on his way out. Of yeah. Hollywood, you know, as far as not not being a guy that could quote unquote launch a film every summer or winter, he just you know he wasn't the launcher anymore. He was he's about to hit that ledge, and this is before the the rebirth of Rambo, the rebirth of Rocky, uh, the Expendables. You know, we we are we are a long way from that. I still enjoy it. The appeal of the assassins for me was um, basically the team behind *Lethal Weapon*. So you know, you've got Joel Silver. Richard Donner, a uh, bunch of weapons. Anytime somebody's using a sniper rifle and has an attache case, I'm there. <laughs> Anytime it's 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 those movies where people have got uh, where people in their professional jobs have it have huge knowledge about weaponry and covert ops and uh, timed grenades and night vision goggles and SWAT gear and it just has in their life that's their that's their profession. It's scary and it's completely not what we're used to day to day, but it's fascinating. And then you give that to someone like Joel Silver and Richard Donner, they're going to make it they're going to make it sexy aren't they um really um i think there's two there's a sequence i think in a cemetery where antonio banderas i think was to take somebody out which i seem to remember um and then there's, i think it's isn't it a dilapidated hotel at the end in Ye- mexico yeah i think so yes yeah or, or, they, or somewhere in puerto rico i think some yeah um it's like a big white building and um it's yeah so it, you know nice set pieces and a very um gratuitous slow-mo and stuff like that um but i love it it but again not one that i've revisited um recently um far, it, it um not as not how i probably prefer the assassin you know the um bridget fonda remake of um nikita i, I really like that that's a that's a favorite of mine but the assassins is is very very cool have you seen that the, i don't know whether it was called something it else it was called point of no return Oh, okay. It's called, it's called Point of No Return. Yes, yeah, I, I saw that. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. I, 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 didn't, I did enjoy that. Um, now, I, I will say what cracked me up about assassins or some of the names they use for some of the locations and the places they were supposed to go to, like Banco de Puerto Rico. <laughs> I'm like, you could, you could come up with any other name for this bank except Banco de Puerto Rico. Are you serious? You got screenwriters. <laughs> Experienced screenwriters are like, uh, how about the Banco de Puerto Rico? That's gold. Use it. That sounds like somebody asking for directions in Puerto Rico, and they're asking where the bank is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Do you know where the Banco de Puerto Rico is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's it's. I'm like, this is just silly. Um, I do recall um, reading, reading somewhere, and I'm not sure if this is truth or rumor because with the internet, you know, you never really know what to believe. Um, Donner, Richard Donner, it has been said that Richard Donner admitted that if he had the opportunity to make the movie again, he would originally he would have stuck with the Wachowskis' original script and swapped the main leads. So Stallone would have been the reckless killer, and Banderas would have been the experienced pro yeah that would have been interesting yeah that would have been interesting but you would have had Banderas basically being an assassin from birth 
wouldn't you? Because he's, he's supposed to be the younger rookie. But he, I don't know, how, what's the age difference between those two? Well, because he looked he looked quite young at that point. But I think he looked young for his age during that. Oh yeah, period. he definitely he looked young for his age because around mm. around that time in ninety five, he's like thirty five when this movie came out. Mm. So you know he was because so, but he looked young. Yeah. You know, plus not only that, dude, he was so over the top in this movie. <laughs> he was so over the top. I mean, beyond over the top. So I don't know if, you know, and granted, they would have done, done it completely differently. I don't know if Stallone could do that, could be that over the over the top. But then again, this is Rocky, and Rocky is always over the top. So I, you know, he may be able to do it, but in all seriousness, you know, he was so over the top. He's that kind of over the top where. You know, he's about to kill somebody. He's talking, but yeah, he'll scratch the temple of his head with it. You know, with it with a snipe with his gun. You know, that kind of that, that kind of silly yeah. stuff. Oh, I love it. Yeah. But it's the kind of stuff that John Travolta is trying to do, but the, like for the last kind of maybe decade, you know, where he tries to put in that eccentric performance, and it's it's with Antonio Banderas as I, he can kind of get away with it because he's he is that kind of flamboyant and and. Uh, you always come back to Desperado, don't you? Um, I remember going to see that um, at the theatre and, and immediately tracking down El Meliachi and, and wanting to know more about Rodriguez, and, and that was kind of the mark of what was to come from him. But um, I, I, yeah, I, lo- I love Antonio Banderas being that wild, eccentric guy that um, has loads of weapons. Yes, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what you want from an action movie, you know? Oh, yeah. uh, no, I like it. It's a good movie. Cool. This week's episode is also brought to you by Snowed In from Action Lab Entertainment, who advises you not to open up your doors this Halloween. Action Lab Entertainment brings you the frightening and chilled tale of Snowed In. A relaxing cabin vacation for four close friends takes a turn for the worse during a severe blizzard. A frantic stranger arrives to warn them that It is coming for them. It wants them dead. But what is It? And how far will these four individuals go to protect themselves? Snowed In is a self-contained 40-page one-shot written by Sean Gabbard with beautifully rendered and atmospheric artwork by Rick Lundin. Snowed In is available for pre-order this month at Discount Comic Book Service, T-Fall, various online retailers, and your local comic book store with an order code of August 110749 with an October release. Pre-order your copy today, and additional information and release schedule can be found at Action Lab Comics. Okay, well, if in nineteen ninety five Stallone was on the way out, then two years earlier, this movie. Uh, <laughs> Moved Die Hard onto a mountain. Yes. <laughs> We're going to talk about Cliffhanger for a little while. Oh. <laughs> Do you have Sylvester Stallone, John Lithgow, and Michael Rooker on a mountain with weapons, cases full of money, and in the UK, again, lots of edits down on fight scenes that usually end with people getting arrows in the arm, in the eye, or just getting chucked off a cliff. Um, it is. It's Die Hard. Um, and I, I didn't realise how... 
much people didn't like this movie and um not that i kind of want to be a movie snob but you know when you kind of you kind of think to yourself i think i know what i'm talking about and then you you get surprised you really you don't like that movie maybe it's just my nostalgia and um my um my love of um one man against the uh against the crack team of terrorists that i i absolutely love but i really like cliffhanger there's, there's something about it the opening scene has been parodied to death i think when i think um ace ventura there's just, as, um, the sequel to ace ventura there's like a parody of stallone dropping the girl and i think in spy hard as well they um they parody it yeah it's just basically stallone against the alan rickman counterpart and in this case um john lithgow it still owns the experienced mountaineer and he knows this terrain better than anyone so they want to kind of use him to find the cases but he kind of breaks free and and tries to find them deactivate the tracking devices and hide them away it was a box office smash i mean it made 250 million worldwide but it also for whatever reason was kind of panned by uh kind of the you know you know the um, raspberry awards those uh, the razzies the Razzies, yeah. Um, it was there. We go. Um, the film was generally praised by critics, eighty-two percent on Rotten Tomatoes or Tomatoes. Um, however, despite the film's critical acclaim, it was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Supporting Actor in John Lithgow, and Worst Supporting Actress in Janine Turner, um, and the Worst Screenplay in nineteen ninety-three. So I don't know whether that just means that they were being overly critical, or whether it means I'm a really poor judge of good movies. But I think I think it's a ton of fun. I love it. Apparently, in two thousand and nine, it was announced by that studio canal would be overseeing a remake of cliffhanger and neil h moritz was set to produce and filming was due to begin in 2010 haven't heard anything about it much like most but i don't know how successful that would be surely it's one that still you could still just put it on and oh look it's cliffhanger why do i need a remake of that but yeah i like it i like it lots of good kills lots of weaponry lots of one-liners people being thrown out of planes um also um apparently it's the one of the most expensive expensive single stuntman stunts ever the stuntman that did the transfer from one plane to another Mm -hmm. there's a a piece at the beginning where he kind of slides down a wire that stuntman got one million dollars just for that stunt alone and it's 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 like in the Guinness Book of Records as um, he, that's the highest amount anyone's ever been paid for a single stunt. Apparently, well, so, I, uh, I would say so because if he dies, his family needs uh, needs the money. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he's not coming back to work. That's for sure. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, he's not. No, no, I'm I'm done. I'm I'm done. That's uh, yeah. Die Hard on a Mountain. If they'd have called it Die Hard on a Mountain, I still would have gone. <laughs> still would have gone. Yeah, Stallone was was at that time, like you said, he was still the big guy. He was still the big cheese. I have mixed feelings about this movie. There are parts of it I enjoy. I just remember all the flack this movie got for all the uh, I guess uh, fallacies about mountain climbing and stuff like this. All the things that a lot of the things that were used, a lot of people complained about. Then again, it is a movie, so you, it's not real. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of like you take Die Hard, G.I. Joe, and a bunch of other action stuff, throw it in a blender, and let Rennie Harlan direct it. And, and, I, and the thing is, is that I think Rennie Harlan just gets such a bad rap. Some of the most critically panned movies, regardless of whether they are financial successes or not, have come under the hand of Rennie Harlan. Example. Cliffhanger, Nightmare on Elm Street Five, or uh, Cutthroat I- <laughs> Cutthroat Island, Cliffhanger, <laughs> Long Kiss Goodnight, Deep Blue Sea, you know, even and like this is probably a movie on your list or my list, Die Hard Two. All mm. all those movies are Rennie Harlan movies, and a lot of people can't. St- 
stand them. I just don't know if this dude just doesn't have any good luck or or, or what it is. But I, I remember this movie came out, and as a kid, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I never went to go see it. I didn't watch this movie until it hit HBO like many years later. And I just remember like Leon playing this super over the top stereotypical like bad dude. And I'm like, you know what? You really need to go. I do not like you, right? I do not like it's like I got so tired because like there's a period of time in Hollywood where it's like, yo, we need a crazy black man. And they would hire one or two people, Isaiah Washington or Leon. And it was like that was the only role, you know, that was like available unless, you know, if you were Eddie Murphy, Denzel or something like that, then you have an established role. But besides that, you played crazy black dude. And it was always those two actors playing crazy black dude. And like they held that down for like a decade. And I just got tired of it. But, you know, Lithgow, for, for what he did, is over the top. He's supposed to be. For this, type yeah. of, for this type of film, as unrealistic as it is, he should be as unrealistic as possible. So, you know, and Janine Turner always plays stiff. So, I, you know, you watch anything with Janine Turner, whether it be Northern Exposure, whether it be Cliffhanger, you name it. She normally plays stuff real stiff. You know, even in Friday Night Lights, the TV series. So you enjoy it, enjoy it. That is great. Yeah. My favorite line in that movie is, um, I think uh, John Lithgow's just dis- dispensed with somebody, probably assassinated them, to probably probably assassinated them whilst keeping an open channel on a CB communicator, thus showing the world that he's very serious. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think Michael Rucker is looking on and he turns to to his character and he says you want to kill me don't you and he says well pick a number and get in line oh, i love that line <laughs> it's fantastic oh and, and the, th- the thing is now if i if people that know the movie and uh, and know that reference are, are kind of there and if that's your pizza movie then you get it now you drop that reference i don't think people even even have taken a number and, and queued for cheese for years at the cheese counter so it doesn't mean anything anymore unfortunately <laughs> the, the picking a number thing just doesn't even work but no, yeah it's it's cheesy it's it's got one-liners and kills and jumps and insane stuff and stallone in a t-shirt in the in, in a, on a mountain for most of the movie yeah. it doesn't look all that it doesn't look all that cold yeah it's it's cool so cliffhanger there you go yeah that was a whole that was a whole other thing too i'm like i know you cold you got to be cold <laughs> and i know after every scene they probably bundle you up in something but still i'm like you got to be cold it's, it's all those egg yolks that he drinks just before he goes on i kept waiting for like quick kick to show up with like you know barefoot <laughs> you know ready to throw some ninja stars at somebody because i'm like this is the only two people that can survive in this weather <laughs> because everybody else is bundled up and ready to scrap but still i was like yeah i don't need clothes i i, I can handle these guys it's not a problem I'm just going to take it there. I'm going to take it to one of John Woo's early American films. I'm going to talk about Broken Arrow. <laughs> oh, God. I thought you were going in a whole other direction. Oh, you thought I was going to do the Van Damme movie? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I was saving that for you. <laughs> Why don't you take your big stick and your boyfriend and go find a bus to catch? <laughs> No, I was going to let you have that one, player. I was going to let you have That was Death Warrant, right? 
<laughs> Which one? Was hard target, man. Hard, hard, target. hard target. Okay, okay. Yeah. I always get those mixed up, man. Broken arrow. I love it. Listen, what you have to do, you need to pretend that right now for this podcast, you're being, you're being uh, recorded by John Woo. So slow it down. Okay. Open the door. Let a white dove go across the front of the lens, <laughs> and maybe. Whatever weaponry you have next to you, you need some kind of silver beading or some special design on on the on the barrels and the hilts. Yes. Um, and just let someone throw a grenade at you really slowly, and then dive out of the way. Y- yes. Uh, and go. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Here we go. Now, you have a situation where terrorists are trying to steal nuclear warheads from the U.S. military. Of course. But what happens is, is that the least that well, the th- one thing that the bad guys didn't expect was that a um, a pilot and a park ranger were going to save the day and spoil all the plans of the bad guys from taking the nuclear warheads and, and taking over the world or whatever. You have these two pilots. Uh, they fly all these like missions together. Uh, one is played by John Travolta, who is Major Vic Deacons, aka Deke and Christian Slater, who plays Captain Riley Hale. And the beginning of the movie, if memory serves me right, they're, you know, they're doing their thing. They're boxing. They're, they're boxing in the boxing ring. And you know, Travolta's like beating the crap out of Slater and talking all this smack and everything. And they, later on, they go on this mission together. And during this, like, this basic routine mission, Travolta tries to take over the ship, tries to shoot uh, Hale, um, played by Christian Slater. And Hale ejects... And it was all part of the plan to crash this plane that had nuclear warheads on it so him and his crew could take these nuclear warheads and basically put the world up for ransom. And if they had to blow up shit, they would blow up shit. They didn't care. And now it's up to Slater and a park ranger played by Samantha Mathis to stop Travolta and his crew. That also includes Howie Long in his film debut um, to... To stop the to stop the bad guys and uh, you know take out the nukes before they destroy uh, Denver, Colorado, if, if memory serves me right. <clears throat> this was the first John Woo movie I had ever seen in a theater. After watching this movie, I went back and I saw Hard Boiled, which is a, a, a gajillion times better than mm. than Broken Arrow. But I still love this movie. I love this movie for the simple fact that John Travolta is the ultimate over the top villain. Yes. No one plays an over the top villain. And I'm talking to levels of comic book super villain style, like John Travolta. Okay? You know, he's the only guy that can, in the movie, in the midst of, like, danger, tell somebody, please do not shoot at the thermonuclear weapons. You know, it's just... Oh. <laughs> you see, this is what I'm talking about. See, he... With this film and and the, his next collaboration with Wu, he does that well. I think now the the Travolta eccentric thing has kind of worn thin. Um, but but right here and now, this is at the peak of Pulp Fiction resurgence. This is like we haven't seen Travolta like this ever. Um, and then throw into the mix John Woo as well. It was it was gold. I remember seeing this with my dad. I went to see this with my dad. But sorry, I'm stealing from you. You go for it. Oh go no, no, it. it's cool, man. It's cool. Please elaborate. Elaborate. We see at this time. Um, when was this? made this was this movie came out in 1996 it was released in february okay well let's see i it's 96 97 98 no i would have had three more years at home living with my parents and at, at that point um 
myself and my dad had kind of found this common ground of the kinds of movies that we liked and the kinds of movies that we liked he liked uh, war movies so we went to see Memphis Belle in the theatre but he also liked Clint Eastwood and he liked um, conspiracy stuff so we went to see In the Line of Fire and he's got a big thing for planes as well and so we went to see Broken Arrow not knowing it would be this all out action fest um, and we loved it absolutely just lab, you know, lapped it up take a supersonic jet going down canyons taking turns that shouldn't really exist and people throwing stuff slower than the you know million dollar man uh it, it was yeah it it was it was just brilliant and um christian slater again this was probably just before he kind of disappeared for a bit yeah um i think whether i don't know he was doing community service for seven years or or what but he um i don't know i, I he he was he was kind of madcap as well and and um this was kind of toned down christian slater for me because i i mean when i think christian slater i just think true romance and and that's so loud by the end of the movie his performance is huge but this is just right i i i really really like it and i don't even think it's a, a guilty pleasure it's 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 a, 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 tr- a sort of tried and tested plot that's been done time and time again but you can tell John Woo is kind of enjoying kind of settling into Hollywood and it's kind of how much have I got to spend? Oh cool, you know, yeah, all right. You know, let's let's see if we can't use an EMP and, and crash land a helicopter halfway through. Um <laughs> and he does. But yeah, it's a ton of fun. Yeah, the, the 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 silly things in the movie and this all goes back to the beginning of the film where both uh, Travolta and Slater are boxing. You know, the, you know, the boxing and stuff like that and I want to say that either Slater or Tra- Travolta like put like twenty dollars down or, or or amount of money down on the table to say you know who can yeah. who can take out who you know boxing wise and then you're getting toward the end of the film it comes up again it comes there. up again and I want to say that it was uh, was was a Travolta that put the money on the table I I can't remember I can't remember. I mean that's a that's a um a, a bit of a woo uh kind of my, well I mean John Woo is renowned for um the bromance um anyway he loves the um. He he loves that uh, mono a mono. Um, you actually like your enemy. Um, kind of mutual respect between his his two main characters, be they enemy or be they friends, and and he always loves that standoff. So if you add, and then and what he'll always do is he'll establish something at the beginning of the film, and then he'll bring it up again at the end. But I I can't I know that there was a bet of some. Yeah, kind. it was a twenty dollar it was a twenty dollar bet because Deacons won the twenty dollar bet earlier in the movie in the beginning, and then Deacons pulls out the twenty dollar bill. There's like one nuclear weapon left because the other one was uh, set off in the mine, you know, so there's no like massive radiation anywhere or anything like that. They're in a trailer, a train trailer, with the second nuke. Travolta's on one side, Slater's on the other. Travolta pulls the $20 out of his pocket, puts the gun on the $20, and says, let's fight. And he's like, you know, twenty dollars, you can't beat me. You beat me, you, you know, you can disarm the you can disarm the weapon and you know, and that's it. So they get into this scrap. <laughs> Basically, what happens is, is that the train is eventually going to wreck. Slater ends up beating Travolta. The train wrecks. All the trailers start to smash into each other. And the last trailer, that ha- the trailer that has the nuclear warhead, like, shoots out of its spot, right? And what does Travolta do? Because it's aiming right at Travolta. Travolta doesn't duck. He stands right in front of it like, yeah, go ahead and let it take me. I'm, I'm hard. I can take it. 
and he gets impaled by the nuclear weapon and then you know it's over the weapon doesn't go off and slater disarm finally disarms the weapon it, it's everything that we love sort of john woo for and um i always would use john woo as um it's kind of a benchmark for, for what kind of movies people used to like when people would come in and ask me questions at, at Blockbuster. It was always be, what have you got that's good? I, I couldn't, I hate that question because it's just, you're, you're a cauldron full of tastes and opinions and I don't know you. Um, what what do we have that's good? God, you, you could like, you know, here's Spice World. It's good for someone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what what you're going to like, and and so I would always use um, Broken Arrow and um, Face Off as as an example. So I would always say, well, did you like Face Off? And if they go, oh yeah, immediately it's kind of anything John Woo, really anything Michael Bay, you know, post Bad Boys, um, or or um, anything with slow motion and two guns and some doves. Yes. But yeah, it became kind of. Um, a frame of reference for for the kind of movies that people liked we we would always kind of throw those two around but yeah it's it's, it's um it's kind of like if firefox was really awesome <laughs> it, it, that's what it would be <laughs> although i don't know what the plane would do if john travolta was controlling it with its mind it would probably oh i don't know it would just fly to vegas i think yeah. um <laughs> in, in that particular movie I, I remember being in a movie theater watching this i saw this in the movie theater like, i think like two or three times that's how much i i enjoyed oh, this movie wow. yeah well see this is also during a period of time where in 96 the movie theaters we went to were dirt cheap so i could go see broken arrow for like five bucks so, you know, it wasn't a big deal. And I remember the second time I saw it, I saw my friend Chris who hadn't seen it yet. And he saw that it also had like um, Curtis Von Hall and Delroy Lindo in limited roles. So, and Curtis Von Hall was the one that found the, the nuclear weapons you know, after Travolta yeah. crashed the stealth bomber, but he ejected the nuclear weapons. And, but he ejected them in a spot where the bad guys could get them. But, like, there was this military team that was going to, once again, go back, get the nuclear weapons so nobody could get them. And that, was, that team was led by Curtis Von Hall. So Von Hall finds the weapons. He's got Howie Long by his side. And, you know, Chris is like, Von Hall ain't going to make it. This brother ain't going to make it, is he? I was like, I ain't telling you. He's like, he ain't going to make it. And then, like, you know, and then Howie Long shot him. And then, like, all the bad guys show up and come to find out Howie Long's a bad guy, too, and, and all this other stuff. And so then, later on in the movie... Delroy Lindo, he's like a general or wherever the hell he is. Delroy Lindo goes to help. He's got his helicopter. He's going to try to get Christian Slater near the, near the train. And I knew this was coming. Somebody tried to shoot at Delroy Lindo. I'm like, yeah, he's probably going to die too. And, and, I, and I figured he would. And Chris was watching the movie. He was like, they ain't going to kill Del- Delroy Lindo, are they? <laughs> he's got a prominent role in this film. I'm like, I'm not telling you. And then when Delroy Lindo's uh, helicopter crashes right before the tunnel, Chris just looked at me. He was like, yo. This is some bullshit. He was like, don't get me wrong. I'm having a good time. But they didn't have to kill both brothers in the movie. They could at least save one of them. And I was, I love I, I was like, hey, man, that wasn't my call. That was not my call. He's like, I'm still enjoying myself. He's like, I'm letting you know that right now. He's like, I'm enjoying myself. But then when John Travolta got impaled by the nuclear weapon and just took it because he just stood up and took it, Chris was like, okay, they need to stop this movie right now. This is beyond ridiculous. He's like, they got to stop this movie right now. He's like, I like it, though. I do. I like it. He's just like, this is just beyond silly. It was just a really good time. I have good memories 
watching this movie. I think it's one of the reasons why it's still one of my favorite action films. It's good. That is brilliant. I'll never forget that now. He has a prominent role in this movie. That's like the ultimate. That's just preposterous. He cannot go. I could just imagine him turning to you in a fit of rage saying, he has a prominent role in this film. <laughs> I, I have his contract and everything. That's cool. And we're going to dial it back to 1994, a movie I saw three times at the cinema. It put the um, phrase, what do you do, into my terminology. So I'm going to give you some speed right about now. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So we have Officer Jack Travan. Traven and his partner, who I'm not even going to call by his real name because it's just Jeff Daniels. He's Jeff Daniels in every movie. Partners, and they uh, they stop a, a hijacking of a lift, as as what done by Dennis Hopper. Not kind of challenging him, but they've defeated him. He's got away, and he's super pissed, and he decides to, um, to rig a city bus uh, with a bomb underneath, and uh, once it gets up to 50 miles an hour, if it drops below 50, it will explode, and so we have to get Jack onto the bus, along with Sandra Bullock and a host of other characters, to keep the bus going. Jeff Daniels has to um, clear the traffic ahead and figure out how they're going to get them off before the bus runs out of petrol, stops, hits somebody, crushes somebody, or blows up. Again, it's Die Hard on a Bus. And it has one of the only Keanu Reeves performances that I buy, I actually buy that he's who he is. He's not just, you know, a piece of cardboard. And he got the role on the back of um, Point Break. And I, I, I like Point Break, but I prefer Speed. It, um, and critically, it was received really well. Really well. Um, it, it's so refreshing to get somebody like Roger Ebert giving it four out of four stars and, and kind of making the point that when action films are done well, they can be a ton of fun and they don't have to be dumbed down, even though this is this is dumb. But it's it, it doesn't let up. You've got John DeBont directing it. It's just a, a roller coaster ride. And no pun intended it keeps going it doesn't let up it's everything I like however it is pointed out that the city would have saved an awful lot of money if they'd have just let the bus explode because the damage that it causes is just ridiculous it blows up an aeroplane at the end of the movie like a big passenger jet at the end of the movie they end up going on a train which causes a load of damage if they had just let the bus explode it would have saved the city a lot of money uh, one of the interesting bits and pieces I've come up or come across whilst looking into it was that Joss Whedon was actually brought on to look at the dialogue and look at kind of bits of the script because they wanted to kind of keep it as non-John McClane-ish as they could. It was Keanu Reeves' kind of thought when he first read through the script that it was so diehard and that the character was so very you know John McClane it wasn't something that he was particularly excited about doing and he wanted to kind of work with the writer to kind of tone it back and make his character less cocky and more kind of concerned about you know the safety of of his uh, fellow citizens but I don't know he puts in a performance in, in this one that, that, I, that I believe um, I really enjoy watching him in this and not so much in other films I, I, I don't buy into him in, a, in an awful lot of movies but in this film for me he, he is that character um, Dennis Hopper is again the eccentric bad guy who communicates via some kind of CB that that became like a, a real thing in these movies and again started with Die Hard with the where are my detonators and all that kind of stuff you know the banter between Bruce Willis and, and um, Alan Rickman and writers took that communication 
and um, kind of sparring over some kind of radio device or, or a phone between the hero and the villain. Um, and it, it's a really nice device because it keeps the patter up and it keeps, rather than the two of them meeting at the end of the film, they know nothing about each other and they've got no reason to hate each other own, other than they're a villain and a hero. They've actually had a patter between them throughout the whole movie and, and it became um, such a, a kind of constantly used thing. And it's used really well in this the way they trick him obviously is a little bit crap because they just <laughs> they just take the um the camera on the bus and they run it on a loop because he's he's watching them yeah. <laughs> um all the time on this on this kind of on this video and it, it was a movie I, I went to see time and time I went to see it three times at the cinema it was a film that I, I was actually um, I was dating my now wife at the time and um, she I think she went to see it twice with me she really enjoyed it but yeah Speed it's probably one I watch maybe once every couple of years not one I've you know revisited recently but it's Die Hard on a Bus we've had Die Hard on a Mountain it's Die Hard on a Bus <laughs> you know I've seen Speed I want to say twice I, I've, I've seen Speed yeah I've seen it about. I've seen it twice, and like I didn't go to a movie theater and see it. I saw it when it was available on VHS, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it much better than the sequel. All the, I mean, all those involved um, admit, admit that it's a. And in fact, here we go. I have it here. 1997, a sequel, Speed Two: Cruise Control, was released. Sandra Bullock agreed to star as Annie for financial backing for <laughs> for financial backing for another project. But Keanu Reeves declined the offer to return as Jack. As a result, Jason Patrick was written into the story as Alex Shaw, Annie's new boyfriend, with her and Jack having broken broken up due to her worry over Jack's dangerous lifestyle. I thought he was quite careful. Um, will <laughs> William Defoe stars as the villain. The film is considered one of the worst sequels of all time, barely reaching 2% on Rotten Tomatoes. Sandra Bullock herself mocked this film's performance and has admitted to regretting being a part of it. Now, see, the funny thing is, is that I did see Speed 2 in the movie theater at a matinee for three fifty, and I, and I went with my friend Chris, and the main reason he wanted to go was so he could see the Alien Resurrection trailer. Because he, he was a big Alien fan. Remember, during this period of time, the internet was, you know, the internet was still young. You know, it was hard to, like, get trailers up on websites as easy as, easy as they are now. I mean, you can get any trailer you want now, essentially. Mm. But back then, it wasn't like that. You know, there was still a handle on things. Pandora's box wasn't open all the time. So he's like, yo, I got to see this trailer for this Alien Resurrection movie. It's attached to Speed 2, so let's go see Speed 2. I'm like, how much? 354 Madden. I'm like, all right, we, we go. So he got to see his trailer. He was like, I don't know about this Alien movie, man. He's like, I, I don't, that, that trailer doesn't really look too good. And, and then we watched the Speed movie, and we get halfway through it, and like Chris looks at me, I look at him, and we just said, in harmony, bullshit. <laughs> but we're going to finish because we paid three fifty, so we're going to finish watching this movie. And that movie was done. We just like walked out. We just like were just sad. And I was like, this is, dis- this is just disturbing. So like we popped a couple more dollars to go see a better movie an hour later, and we felt, we felt justified after that. But... Uh, but yeah, Speed 2 is just bad. Well, I'm going to take it back to John Woo. It's not Hard Target. This is the film I actually watched after... I watched Broken Arrow because I want to know about more about John Woo's work. The film is called Hard Boiled. And this film, now I'm just going to give you the description of the film as told by Wikipedia. 
1992 Hong Kong action film directed by John Woo. <laughs> the film stars Chow Yun-Fat as Inspector Yuen, Tony Leung Chi-Wai as Tony, an undercover cop, and Anthony Wong as Johnny Wong, a leader of criminal triads. film features Chow Yun-Fat's character, whose partner is killed in a tea house gunfight with a small army of gangsters. One of the mob's high-ranking assassins is the undercover cop Tony, who must team up with uh, Chow Yun-Fat's character, Inspector uh, Yuen, for their common pursuit of taking down Wong's crime syndicate. Uh, the film leads up to a climax in the hospital where the two must rescue innocent civilians and newborn babies from the maternity ward while fighting off dozens of mob hitmen. Now, I'm tell you something. This is the first movie I have ever seen where violence is akin to poetry. Yeah. This is cin- cinematically... And then, granted, look, it's not the best of John Woo's Hong Kong work. The Killer... To, the Killer is a better film than Hard Boiled. Yeah. But Better Tomorrow is a better film than Hard Boiled. But Hard Boiled in itself for the action sequences alone is cinematically one of the most beautiful films I've ever watched. I seem to remember both the beginning uh, set piece in the tea house and the the last set piece in the in the kind of maternity ward. They're very, very long, really long sequences. And, and they're just jam-packed full of... It kind of takes those... Jackie Chan scenes from like Police Story um, and Meals on Wheels and stuff like that and then just says okay well you know that you can do this but this is how far I take it with choreography and, and including weapons and pieces of furniture and just stuff to jump off um, and then and then just give them this huge armory as well and shoot it beautifully I mean you said poetry and I, in my brain it was kind of ballet it was just it, it's it's insane what he's I, I, I want to kind of peel away the front of his brain and just see this kind of action scene storyboard sequence go over and over and over and how he kind of figures it all out. But just for my agree, it's definitely not his best film, but for, for action, it's it's great. It's it's always a, not such a come down with John Woo movies because you always get this huge sort of surge of action and it's beautifully shot and it's amazing. You're reeling from it. And then you kind of, especially if you're watching, you know, a dubbed version, you do get this kind of cheesy interplay between two best friends and they've got pet names for each other and stuff like that, which has kind of become this constant with John Woo movies. And, you and you know, unfortunately then you're just hoping for the next action scene. But when it comes, it, it, it's it's amazing. Yeah. I probably did exactly the same thing. Probably not straight. It was probably I probably did that on the back of Face Off. Mm. But um, yeah, I, I went back and, and went through a better tomorrow. He did a war movie as well. I can't remember the name of it, but he did a he did one. He did an, an, an Eastern war movie, which was again all the set pieces were, were absolutely spot on. But Hardboard's Hardboard's good. I, there's a there's a game. He's recently directed a game, yeah, and I can't. It's called Stranglehold. Came out a couple years that, ago. It was the sequel it. to a Hard Boiled. That's it. That's it. And uh, again, you can pretty much do whatever <laughs> you see on the screen, jumping off things with two two guns in slow motion and, and stuff. I, I, you know, I just like the fact that, like, with the opening, the opening, the opening sequence of, of uh, Hard Boiled, you have Inspector Ewan, who also plays the clarinet. I mean, like he's he's <laughs> yes, like kind of like, he's kind of like at this like uh, you know jazz house or this jazz club and like you know he's making himself a drink he drinks his drink and then he starts playing the clarinet and it's like all peaceful and stuff and so like you get to see the other side <laughs> of his character and then they cut to this tea house and like then it just becomes like this explosion of action and I had never seen action like this before I mean where your gun violence is akin to sword vi- sword fighting. You know, with all the moves, all the action, and 
and to this day, I'll never forget toward the end of that bat, the end of that gunfight, where all these people are trying to leave, trying to leave the uh, you know the tea house before they get killed. You know, I mean, these are just innocent bystanders that don't want to get killed by the bad guys. They're running like all these people are running down the steps, and like the bad guys are just shooting people down the steps, and people are trying to flee and run away. And they see Chow Yun Fat's character about to come down the steps, and he like leans to the side, uses the rail. And just like slides down the steps and just starts gunning people because like this is where the whole guns akimbo thing came from with you know for me with heroes like with two guns at, at one time yeah. because yeah. you know normally Amer- American conventional action films a hero has one gun yeah I first noticed that when I watched uh, Broken Arrow even though there was one scene where Slater had two guns one was like a six shooter and the other one was your you know your your standard conventional pistol with a clip. Even though he kept shooting the the, uh, the six shooter, I'm like, brother, you ran out of bullets a half hour ago. You need to just use the other gun. Anyway, but Chow Yun Fat's like sliding down the stair run, just like da 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 da. Seeing that back in like '90s, finally seeing that '96, I was just like, I was 21 years old. I was just like, whoa, this is I've never seen anything like this before. The all the action sequences. I don't know how many people or how many directors, studios, whatever have like bit off a of John Woo movie since then that movie pulled me in to watch A Bear Tomorrow. It pulled me in to watch The Killer, which I just love. Mm. Which I just love. But Hard Boiled is what set it all off for me. So that's why it's one of my favorites. See, after you've just dropped that um, absolute staple of, um, of action history, I'm now going to cheese it up a bit for you. Okay. Donnie, you're going to be very happy because in this country, I'd be regarded as absent without leave. I believe Lionheart is the name of the movie <laughs> in, uh, <laughs> in the US. Oh, it was also known as Wrong Bet as well, somewhere in the world. Hmm. Uh, but it was made in 1990. Jean-Claude Van Damme, of course stars in this um as a uh, apparent a well he's part, he's part of the um french legion um and it, it transpires by the end of the movie he was he kind of took the fall for his brother his brother was going to be caught with some drugs apparently and uh, and he uh, van damme kind of said it was him and he gets sent off to the, the french legion out in the desert with uh, with lots of people that just tell him to dig a lot and be mean to him. <laughs> his brother is a, a drug dealer still in the the US, and his um, his brother is killed in a not even a drug deal gone wrong. At the beginning of the movie, he he goes to buy some some coke, and the kind of gang that give him the coke give him a bag of sugar instead of coke, and he sniffs it up, and. Um, uh, and and famously, famously says this. He, he's in a French accent. He says, "This is sugar." And the guy <laughs> says, "And the and the guy says, yeah, no shit." And he goes, "Yeah, no shit," and and flicks it back at the bloke. And the guy promptly knocks him out, covers him in petrol, and sets him on fire, <laughs> thus leaving him completely scarred and in the hospital, not chance of living. And he does he does eventually 
uh, pass away. Word gets to Van Damme. I don't know where he, where he is in the world. He must be he must be out stationed in. Oh, here we go. In North Africa, he's stationed in North Africa with the French Foreign Legion. A letter gets through to him somehow to say that look, your brother is in in intensive care and you need to get home. And uh, the French Foreign Legion won't let him go. So um, what Van Damme does is he kicks people really slowly. <laughs> sorry, were you drinking there, Sean? I'm sorry. No, no, <laughs> I had to, had to catch myself <laughs> because he. <laughs> I was like, you know, he's taking a little sip, and then you say he kicks people really slowly, and so I I, I caught myself before I choked. <laughs> Yeah, catch yourself before you choke yourself. Um, he he, um, he kicks people really slowly and kicks the, the, the tent pegs off of tents to cover really bad soldiers and then steals a jeep and escapes the French Foreign Legion through a fence. And only I think the French Foreign Legion consists of only five people in North Africa because that's how many people you can see attempting to pursue him. <laughs> And eventually, the French Foreign Legion give permission for two particularly gruff-looking legionnaires to to follow him across the world. And uh, Lyon, which, which, um, which is his name, manages to to get on a boat and uh, and kind of stoke the fires of this of this boat to pay for his ride to um, the states. And he eventually gets, I believe, to New York um, and uh, swims to shore. Um, and as soon as he gets off, uh, as soon as he steps onto the dock, he just happens upon um, an illegal gambling fighting ring, um, and uh, and kind of puts himself forward as one of the contestants and uh, and wins some money, and very very quickly um, strikes up a, a friendship uh, with someone who who then becomes his manager, um, and uh, I think it's is it Joshua? His name is I can't yes, it, it is Joshua because Joshua's played yeah. by. Um that one brother's always in a bunch of movies, uh, Harrison Page, because Harrison Page was also in Die Hard too, if memory serves me right. Yes, yeah, he, he's I like I really like him in 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 a, I'm going to call it AWOL because that's how I know it. Um, in AWOL, very he's very um you 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 don't find it difficult to like him. Um, he's got this pronounced limp, and you can tell that he's been part of this game at some point. And, oh, uh, correction, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's not oh. the same brother from Die Hard too. He looks similar to the brother. Actually, Harrison Page was the brother that was the police chief in Sledgehammer, the TV series. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah, he's um, oh no, he's a really likable character, and and the two of them kind of um, hit it off straight away. But he very quickly gets him into the upper echelons of illegal um, fight rings and and the kind of Wall Street side of it, uh, and introduces him to this kind of power hungry uh, woman who who runs these things and uh, just gets him involved in this and he kind of does this tour um, of parts of I suppose I don't know whether it's parts of of New York or they go to other parts of America I think they end up going to LA for the last the last bit Um, but he he does these high profile fights and and kind of tries to win money to help uh, Leon's brother's family so his sister-in-law and his I suppose it would be his niece. By the end of the movie, you know, that family's kind of getting on fabulously, but it gets to kind of spotlight some of these fights. And I have to say now, going back and watching it now, what is it spotlighting? Kicking people slowly, um, (laughs) unfortunately, or or kicking someone and then showing the same kick five times and finishing with an almighty, which is what happens in most of Van Damme's movies. But the one bit of the trailer I always remember is the fight in the swimming pool, which is where they both come out in these kind of bathing suit singlet are they called singlets one piece things like a vest and pants set <laughs> in one and both the combatants are wearing these things which is a bit weird uh 
and it's kind of a half drained out swimming pool so if you kind of the kind of pool where Dogtown and the and the Z boys would have loved just for skating but these guys are deciding to fight in it and but the but the deep end of the pool still got water in it and I always remember the trailer is this elbow shot that Van Damme comes up from the water and smacks this guy with this kind of uppercut elbow and they rerun it about five times with this almighty that he always does with these <laughs> I don't know it's, it's got this kind of pseudo uplifting energy ending with this almighty score he's defeated these guys because they've they're telling him to throw the fight or they think they've swindled, swindled him and set him up but I, I used to watch this constantly this was i mean this was at the peak of i would just watch bloodsport kickboxer and a war on a loop and then i'd watch cyborg and go i'll forget that even existed and then just keep watching those three over and over again these those were the three kind of martial arts ones um, of his that I, I would always I would always watch without them getting too complicated with um, I don't know a Russian nuke or something like that these were fighting films and they would spotlight matches as opposed to he's an agent for, for some bizarre organisation so this one is sort of amongst the um, amongst the kind of Van Damme and some of the martial arts sort of fans it's always regarded as one of the kind of his essentials if, if such a thing exists but yeah I've always had a bit of a a soft spot for this one. It's a it's a goodie, and it's and it's much better than a film he did many years later that went direct to video uh, called Legionnaire, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and if I if I could have walked out of a straight to video release, I would have, but I I can't leave my own house, Sean. I, I know you can. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> the hell with this film. I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No. Um. The like the only thing I remember most about Lionheart, and you broke it down, and even Donnie joked about this in a text message to me if this movie got mentioned, because you know Van Damme had a set of films that essentially were Bloodsport remade in a different way, and that's one of them. Whether it be Lionheart, whether it be um, you know Kickboxer, you know, or Bloodsport itself, or you know, there's just like he had a set of films where it's like it's essentially. We just got to find a way to get to the tournament, the, the tournament. But we don't want it to be bloodsport again. So let's just, uh, you know what? Let's make him. A, a, you know, he works at McDonald's and his brother dies, and now he has to, you know, save, you know, save the day, and he has to go fight in this tournament. Anything to get Van Dam into a tournament. As long as they got him to the tournament, they're like, we're gold. <laughs> because those movies made money and eventually they stopped making money for, for Van Damme because as always with any actor or actress you get to a point you're on top of the world and then you fall off so yeah. you, know, you get built up to get broken to get broken down but um, I'm glad you mentioned Lionheart and not Double Team I'm, I'm very proud of you so <laughs> well there was a movie I was going to pick that does have double in the title but it's a movie that I've I've not watched recently so I wasn't going to bring it up but <laughs> I, I could do I tell you what though AWOL is one of those ones um, again with um, with all of Van Damme's movies the one liners in it are always quite memorable because you always get this dialogue from the other the other parts of the cast the Van Damme dialogue usually isn't all that memorable because the, he's he's got so little of it apart from of course in um, in Hard Target with the take your big stick your boyfriend and go find a bus to catch which is the most bizarre put down I've ever I've ever heard Hmm. It's just it's just bizarre, and it, and if the if the baddie was a bit of a quipper, I, let, let, let's put it this way: if I was the the biker guy with the big beard and the 
mullet and the knife and I was hassling a lady and the hero had said that to me, I'd like to think I'd be able to come up with something or other. Like, really? Seriously? <laughs> Big st- First of all, it's a knife. I've only met these guys yesterday. You've got no reason to think that we're romantically involved. It was, just, yeah, it, it's just the most bizarre put down ever. AWOL's a great one for lines. You've got that one, which is the, um, which is the no shit. And then you've got the, um, the scene where they just want to find a payphone and they get surrounded by basically the cast of the Michael Jackson bad video <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he just said oh, we just want to he, he basically makes an excuse he says it's alright we'll find another phone and the guy says you don't like my phone cuz and then the fight starts <laughs> You kept talking about AWOL and, and mm. stuff, but I'm going to tell the people the different names, all the different names, well, some of the different names for the film Lionheart, depending on where you live. France, Lionheart, Lionheart was known as Leon. Um, in Greece, it was called Lionheart. In Australia, it was called Wrong Bet. AWOL was originally the working title for the film in the U.S. before they decided to name it Lionheart. In the U.K., it was AWOL, absent without leave. France, full contact. And in Denmark, Lion the Street Fighter. <laughs> yeah. That's a confusing marketing campaign right there. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes, yes. But, um, but anyway, I'm going to give you a double billing Kevin Hooks movies. Um, Kevin Hooks is a director that is known for two films in the 90s. Uh, besides that, he's done like a bunch of television stuff uh, since then. The two films are Passenger 57 and the other film is Fled. One is very well known. The other one, no one gives a damn about but me. Um, <laughs> in, in Passenger 57, um, an airline security expert must take action when he finds himself trapped on a passenger jet when terrorists seize control of it. Uh, Wesley Snipes plays John Cutter. Not John McClane, John Cutter. Because a lot of people that gripe about this movie are like, oh, it's just die hard on a plane. Well, guess what, bitches? It still made money, and I still like it. Wesley Snipes plays John Cutter. Plan not working out the way you want it, asshole. Don't flatter yourself, Cutter. You prevented nothing. Although it seems I may have underestimated you. Dumping the fuel is quite ingenious. At least Mr. Douglas's body won't have so far to fall now. <laughs> well, maybe Vincent could hit your vibe with him on his way down. You know, Charlie, I'm a little surprised at you. Didn't your father ever teach you never send a boy to do a man's job? Speaking of boys, our stewardess friend must be feeling particularly unsatisfied. Charlie, you ever play roulette? On occasion. Well, let me give you a word of advice. Always bet on black. Uh. Willie Mays Hayes just told off the bad guy. I was like, that's awesome. See, I ain't forgot about Major League. Got to start somewhere. Willie Mays Hayes. I think the thing that cracks me up about this movie the most, and my friend, one of my friends, always brings this to my attention, that halfway through the movie, the plane does land, and Snipes gets off the plane. He, you know, he sneaks off the plane or whatever, then deals with racism. But then, <laughs> but, but then he ends up getting back on the plane, and the plane takes back off again. He's like, this makes no sense. You know, to, to my friend, this made no sense at all. He was like, the movie should have been done an hour ago. I think Wesley thought that they were filming sequels back to back, kind of like Superman 1 and 2. So when he got off, he was like, oh, brilliant. Are you you're just going to keep filming? Yeah, okay, all right. And then he just got back on and thought that it was Passenger 58. No. I, 
But no, but really think about it. There are a lot of people in this movie. Tom Sizemore was in. This is early Tom Sizemore, not the Sizemore that we know now. That's a whole different person. Um, Liz Hurley. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Elizabeth Hurley, Bruce Greenwood. Um, you know, it's, it's just it's once again, stand, typical action film. A typical action film. Not that much to it. It's just one of those films that deals with racism, and and violence and international terrorists. That's pretty much all there is to it. Uh, a couple years later, you got an executive decision, which is different from Passenger 57, but still has some Passenger 57 type themes to it. But um, Like a plane. Like a plane, yes, like a plane, yeah. yes. <laughs> this was the film that really, as far as my personal opinion goes, put Snipes on the map as an action star. Um, you know, even though Snipes is, you know, is an actor, can do other things other than action. But this was the film that put him on the map to be an action star. It also put him in good graces with Warner Brothers because a lot of his action films were Warner Brothers films um, for, for a good period of time. They did some stuff with Sony later on, then rebounded with Blade in like 98, the film that put comic book, comic book movies back on the map. I just really remember the whole always bet on black. And this was like the birth to the black action star because yeah. Eddie Murphy was a movie star. Okay. He could do comedy. He could do action. He could do whatever. There was still no true black action star. You had your, you know, you had your black exploitation actors, but in the eighties and nineties, they pretty much went away and neither did stuff for television or stuff that was just straight to VHS or stuff that was sold overseas and then seen later in the United States, but there was no black action movie star. Snipes was that. And that's why Passenger 57 has you know, left such a mark with me at that time. It fulfills all the requirements I need for an action movie, and I'm pleased with that. Do you think, I mean, do you think as an audience, action movie fans or fanatics or people that sort of gravitate to these kinds of movies more so than others are maybe more forgiving because they know what comes with the packaging because like the expendables the expendables was supposed to be and i suppose in a way it succeeded but it was supposed to be almost a celebration of of everything that we love about action movies but when we were in that era and when we were in that time and those two decades specifically i think a lot of the time as fans we are kind of you just said it you know it's not a very good movie but you know, it, it, it serves a purpose. Right. Well, see, um, I, I look at it like this. Like with the with the Expendables, when that came out, it, yes, it was a love letter to 80s action films and partial 1990s action films. But you got to look at the state of the of the of the action movie to like really put it all in place. Because let's think about it. Besides Jason Statham, Jason Statham is really your only true action star. Okay, the rest are like oh, these. I'm not. I'm not saying that Jason Statham can't act because he can. If you go watch the Bank Job, which is not your stereotypical action film, you can see that Jason Statham can act. Can act. Okay, like say for instance. Before the Expendables came out, which kind of re- reintroduces audiences to the over-the-top, super over-the-top action films, you had an era of the sensitive action hero. You know, you had your Jason Bourne. You know what I'm saying? You, you know, your J- basically you had the Jason Bourne era, where you have the sensitive action hero that can whoop some ass. It's not over the top. It's very, you know, serious, realistic, and these heroes are withdrawn and they have these issues. And it kind of makes them down to earth, so you're, they're quote unquote relatable. The action movies of the '80s and '90s didn't worry about that stuff. They just said, "We're going to give you action. We're going to give you this ABC plot, and we hope you enjoy it because we're here to just you're here to watch this just to get things off your mind for a couple hours." 
And yes, there and there are action films that transcend that. Like I said, John Woo's The Killer. John Woo's The Killer transcends all forms of conventional action cinema. It has action, but there is a story, a long-lasting story that goes with it. There, you know, there are films that surpass all that. But for the most part, for the general base of action movies, yeah, we accept we accept that this is an action film. This is what we expect from it. But if we get more from it, fantastic. I think we, we kind of briefly touched on it in, in a previous conversation kind of about about that kind of benchmark of, of the first kind of black action star um, and being able to see Wesley Snipe, first of all, do martial arts of sorts. And, and I I think he'd been... he'd It was something that he'd been into sort of since a youth, wasn't it? He was... He was always into into martial arts and, and um, a huge Bruce Lee fan and big into karate and, and taekwondo and jiu-jitsu and things like that. But this was the sort of first time or opportunity he'd got to kind of showcase it. But then Warner Brothers did U.S. Marshals, didn't they? That was the next. That was one of the one of the ones off the back of this one, wasn't it? No, no, the sequel n- to, the, to the Fugitive. Wasn't the it? sequel to the Fugitive, yes, was U.S. Marshals. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. No, it's a good one. But um, Fled, I'm not, I'm not familiar unless it was under a different name, unless you're going to remind me and I'm going to go, oh, that one. Okay, Fled was an MGM film. It was released four years later. This was like in 1996. It was an action film. It was a, a loose remake of a movie called The Defiant Ones, which came out in like 1958. And, and Handcuff- Handcuffs. Yes, Handcuffs. Yes, Got- sir. Yes. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. The film stars Lawrence Fishburne and Stephen, Paul, uh, Stephen Baldwin um, as a pair of escaped criminals on the run from police, corrupt officials, and the Cuban mafia. Both uh, Fishburne and Stephen Baldwin, they're, like, they're handcuffed. They're on the run. They are escaped criminals for basically serving for crimes they didn't commit it also has Selma Hayek in it it's got those over-the-top action moments like say for instance there's a scene where Lawrence Fishburne is tired of running and like there's this big ass like Cadillac or or whatever coming after him he turns around he's got his big gun he just stands right in the middle of the road and starts shooting at the Cadillac at the Cadillac but he actually you know hits the right shot and the Cadillac goes flying to the side that type of stereotypical stuff. Also, Stephen Baldwin's character is kind of like a cinemaphile and like always talks about old movies. And then at the end of the movie, when all the wrongs are righted, he like does like this scene and he slaps Lawrence Fishburne in the face. If he, well, who's played? Whose name is Charles Piper? Uh, Stephen Baldwin plays Luke Dodge, and Dodge slaps Piper in the face and says something, and then. Lawrence Fishburne, you know, Piper's looking at him like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And Stephen Baldwin, or Luke Dodge, says, Ike Turner, from What's Love Got to Do With It? <laughs> and Fishburne has this look on his face and just about to start beating the shit out of him, and that's how the movie ends. Yeah, man. It's, once again, one of those films, not much to, not, not much to it. I just enjoy watching it. There's a, some motorbike stuff going on near the end of the movie, isn't there? Sure is. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yep. And this was also one of those films that was supposed to be a vehicle for Lawrence Fishburne in 96. Because, like, The Matrix was many, you know, many years later. But this was supposed to be his, like, action vehicle. It didn't really, like, blow up the charts. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, Fled grossed $17 million in the United States. And, and so it, it's not like it was, a, it was a barn burner. But it was just it's still one of my favorite action movies.
the last time we did this on the 80s, the 80s one, I probably surprised a few people with Turner and Hooch as my selection because um, it's probably known more as a comedy. But I've got to say, Turner and Hooch was probably one of my earliest memories of seeing a live action movie at the cinema mm-hmm. um, as a kid because that was 89, I believe. And so it just snuck into the 80s. And this film, again, the majority of people will regard it as a comedy. But for me, I saw this the following year in 1990 and I was exactly 12 years old and I was exactly old enough to go and see this movie because it was rated 12 much like Tim Burton's Batman which was the first ever 12 rated movie in the UK and I was just too young to watch it Um, so when I saw this as far as I was concerned some of it was an action movie because it had one-liners it had a very big action star it had some comedy but it had the trappings of what i was used to seeing as um as a an action movie i am of course talking about ivan reitman's kindergarten cop (laughs) (laughs) ah you know you always find a way to take it there don't you You, yeah you find a way to take it there go ahead The, the floor is yours go ahead go ahead Okay, my name is John Kimball and I love my car. John Kimball is a tough police detective who must go undercover as a kindergarten teacher to catch a drug dealer known as Cullen Crisp before Crisp can get uh, to his ex-wife and son while along the way he discovers his passion for teaching. (laughs) 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 Pamela Reed plays his partner Phoebe O'Hara and Penelope Ann Miller plays Joyce, the teacher who becomes Kimball's love interest. Um pure nostalgia for me but when you break this movie down it has the trappings of of this action movie the opening sequence is him kind of on the beat as uh, as this police detective going undercover and basically walking on a crack den and shooting at people and uh, doing these kind of one-liners like who are you i'm the party pooper and all and all that kind of stuff the villain of the piece is horrible like really really vile you know he's it's not i'm not talking about setting fire to a school it's just that you know he he um at the beginning you see him kill the informant uh, later in oh sorry he kills the informant later in the movie his mother is a diabolical woman um who constantly is buying prescription medication for the boy that he she'll eventually look after and at the end of the movie aided by a ferret john kimball manages to manages to save the day but i've got a real soft spot for this um yes it's for me anyway it's very funny um lots and lots of one-liners and and from the kids as well but it's also become a source of fun because of the pronounced accent that of course schwarzenegger's got um the, the kids speak far better than him who is your daddy and what does he do um all that stuff is it's not a tuma. It's not a tuma. It just co- constantly uh, throughout the film. There's all these kind of you know, funny, funny bits and pieces. And I kind of fell in love with Penelope Ann Miller during the course of this movie. It plays all the time over here on Channel Five, which is kind of the, the not the dumping ground, but kind of the the rerun channel. Um, and it's it's highly edited down for some of the violence that kind of makes it not a film that is played at one in the afternoon here. Uh, as a 12, 12 year old kid, I saw this as an action movie, but in a school. So uh, I, yeah, I, I've got a big soft spot for Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> yeah, it's for kids. That, that was like one, one, of the, <laughs> one of the biggest things that cracked me up. Every time I would see commercials for it, I'm like, I'm sure there are serious undertones in this film, but yet, you know, they constantly involve the kids. 
And I'm like, how do these two things mix together? And how can they play this off to get kids to go see this movie? They deal with um, child abuse halfway through the movie. There's a kid that keeps coming, a kid called Zach that keeps coming to school with bruises on his neck yeah. and all over him. And at one point, I think Schwarzenegger puts his hand on his shoulder and he goes, ah, and he, he, you know, he, um, confronts the father, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and, you know, hit the kid and I'll hit you. Um, <laughs> and then you get the what did it feel like to hit that son of a bitch which they edit of course for the um, for one o'clock in the afternoon but yeah you know d- drug dealers uh, uh, snitches uh, villains who mercilessly kill um, very very controlling uh, grandparents who don't mind shooting people <laughs> um, he he I think he wants to buy a gift for this for his kid. Goes into a toy store and somebody bought the last one, so he slams the guy's head in a car door to steal it from him, and then walks off to give him the present. There are vile characters in this film, and again, when it came out on video, there was no twelve certification on VA on video. It was always for the cinema. So if you went to see a twelve when it arrived on video, it was a fifteen. Mm. So even if I'd have gone to the theatre to see it, I wouldn't have been able to buy it from the store. So it was a fi- kindergarten copies of. 15 on video which is just seems bizarre but again how do you market this stuff with all of these you know nostalgia takes takes over and uh, it becomes something more than it is i actually really like the score as well um it's a randy uh, randy edelman um score which i really really liked it was just one of those it was one probably one of the first films where i kind of noticed the um the music in the background the first film that wasn't like a john williams score that i actually really liked mm-hmm. but yeah Kindergarten cop. It's um, it's uh, it's uh, if I'm off if I'm off work sick and it happens to coincide with um, with half term or something, or, or the kids are off, then I'll, I'll put it on. I mean, Joe, sit there and watch it. But, uh, <laughs> it's a ton of fun. Well, and 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 it has a small child saying the word vagina. You can't go wrong. Well, in the United St- <laughs> in the United States, Kindergarten Cop was a PG thirteen film. Um, yeah. I think if this movie was like released like three years beforehand, it would have been rated R, and it probably still would have been a, <laughs> and it probably still would have been a hit. So. Schwarzenegger battles child abuse in the suburbs. <laughs> it, you know, they would have found a way to make it work either way. You always find a way to put that one movie in there. You always find a way. But I ain't mad at you. I'm not because you actually have uh, led to an excellent segue um, because I'm going to talk about a Schwarzenegger film that came out in 1994, directed by uh, James Cameron. It was, it started. Let me just, let me just rip this up right now. Here you go. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Also stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Arnold, Bill Paxton, Tia Carrere, uh, and Charlton Heston, and Art Malik. And it also has the uh, early film early film debut of Eliza Dushku. That fi- and Bill it has Bill Paxton in it as well. Yes, yes, um, ladies and gentlemen, this film is True Lies. Now, True Lies is the story of one Harry Tasker, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who leads a double life, uh, performing covert op missions for the United States government under a counterterrorism task force called the Omega Sector, because they are the last line of defense. Albert Gibson, played by Tom Arnold, and uh, Fasil uh, assist him in these missions. Uh, Spencer Trilliby, who is the boss, played by Charlton Heston with an eye patch, 
um, is also in the film. <laughs> and um, Harry's wife, Helen, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and his daughter, Dana, played by Eliza Dushku, believe he is a boring computer salesman with Tectel Systems, which is the cover company for um, the Omega sector, uh, doing a lot of corporate travel. Harry is unable to spend quality time with his family due to his secret identity, causing Helen to believe that he does not appreciate her. What ends up happening is Schwarzenegger goes on a mission. Eventually, he does get found out. Eventually, his wife does find out that he is a spy or that he leads a double life. And, you know, his daughter gets involved because, like, what happens is that there's this uh, terrorist organization called the Crimson Jihad, and um, which is also nicknamed the Sand Spike or something like that. So, Harry... Suspects that uh, Juno Skinner, who's played by Tia Carrere, who's who's this antiques dealer, has ties to the leader of the Crimson Jihad, and then all the chaos ensues after it. This film, when it came out, was one of the most expensive movies ever made at the time. It was one of the first films in the '90s uh, to cost over 100 to 120 million dollars. So that was a first uh, when this movie came out. Also digital effects the visual effects were by digital domain which is co-founded by uh, mr cameron as well film is full of action this is one of schwarzenegger's best action movies ever in my personal opinion and this is also the film that made me really really once again appreciate jamie lee curtis well i mean for for two clear reasons in that movie i would have thought um usually during the dance scene um it, it, it's uh, the the, har- the the scene on the Harrier at the end alone is worth the price of admission. Um, to, I mean, you sort of talk about effects now, and and I suppose if you went back and tried to kind of take it apart now, you'd probably. Uh, but then again, I think um, James Cameron movies tend to hold up. Like if you went back and watched The Abyss now, the effects hold up. T2 still holds up. Um, and True Lies, you know, you're not dealing with kind of an alien entity or anything like that. But um, he has a way of kind of weaving in these amazing effect sequences and, and that, that kind of fight on the wing of a Harrier at the end as it kind of swings around. The taking out of the bridge near the end mm-hmm. is fantastic as well. Yeah. Um, again, um, there is a sequence in the middle where he's tied up and be, he's been drugged and he's about to be tortured um, which in, in our version, this is terrible, I'm pitching the UK as a very pretty place but um, <laughs> yeah, we can't allow this they'll, they'll riot if they see the scalpel go in the eyeball, they'll riot um, <laughs> and we did <laughs> we want uncut true lies now <laughs> but um, yeah it's the, the scene where um, where he's escaping from from uh, from being tortured, and he throws a, a scalpel or he stabs it through the eye of one of the terrorists. Um, in when I saw it in the theatre, it was completely uncut, and on subsequently when it came out on video, um, that's kind of all trimmed down. Um, but yeah, it's it's a ton of fun. I, I like the opening sequence as well, where he's um, he's he's in the snorkel gear, uh, and he, he kind of just like like at the beginning of Goldfinger, he kind of comes up out of the water, and suddenly he's in a white tux sneaks in and then comes away and there's all this snow, the snowmobiles and, and stuff um, I seem to remember there's a really awesome scene in a public restroom as well there's a shoot, shootout in, yeah, a, yeah. in a public restroom and then water goes everywhere and he literally just takes a man's head and collides it with this porcelain bowl it's fantastic um, yeah Bill Paxton just needed to have said game over man game over and I would have been completely satisfied <laughs> well that, that's a whole other thing about the movie too is that it's it's an action film, but at the same time, in a lot of spots, it's really a comedy as well. Um, you know, it's one of the few films or few things 
that has Tom Arnold in it, and Tom Arnold isn't doesn't annoy you. You know what I mean? He, his role as the sidekick, um, and a lot of that's due to the writing. It, you know, he does that. He performs that role well. So you know, I'm not upset when he's in the movie. You know what I mean? Hmm. But there are points in the movie where it's just like, okay, do I call this an action film? Do I call it an action comedy? Do I just call it a comedy? And it, so it's that question has like a lot of you know has like a lot of those undertones as far sorry that question always rattles in my head but really it's an action movie period i mean that's that's what it's there for majority of it is action there's just a lot of comedy blended into it. it's like with bad boys bad boys is an action action movie but it's got a lot of comedy blended into it to balance it out now yeah oh and like oh look let's be real i mean when this movie was made for some this movie's going to be seen as sexist uh, possibly misogynistic basically for the treatment of female characters in the film um and then some people might think that the film has a very strong like anti-arab or muslim you know prejudice to it also at the same time it's 1994 and and so like terrorism back then cinematically and how terrorism is filmed now two different things because even james cameron said when they were seriously about to hop on board and do a true lies 2 after 9-11 he said listen you, terrorism is something you can't take lightly. Okay, so I'm not going to try to make this movie. I'm, I'm, it's just it's on the back burner. We got we got to let it stop. We just got to let it simmer for a, for a couple more years. So, you know, those are the things you have to look at. But for, like I said, I still enjoy this movie. I really do. To me, it's still one of Schwarzenegger's best movies ever made that he ever was a part of. Go and, I, and also it's Arnie being very self aware of. Um the things that make him him or, or made him you know big at the, at the time it's um it's a very self-conscious film so it's it's kind of i know i'm good at this i know that my audience likes me doing this i'm i'm gonna take myself a little less seriously um i would have liked to have seen him possibly i don't know um chopping firewood maybe carrying a log <laughs> at some point and then eating an ice cream. That would have really, that would have done it for me as well. You watched, he, you watched Commando before this recording, <laughs> didn't you? I just remember in the last recording, man. That's all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was pointed out to me the other day that the the, that the opening scene of Commando, it's, the, it's one of the only scenes where it just features a man carrying a tree um, <laughs> when, it, when it's not Christmas. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's all nice and she's chucking her around the swimming pool anyway <laughs> okay it's 1992 uh, you, the following ingredients are, are required you need Gary Busey you need Tommy Lee Jones, a microwave, a large cake, Erica Reliniak and Steven Seagal, and you get under siege. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, um, I couldn't, I, you could not, in, in all good uh, conscience, uh, talk about 90s action movies without talking about Under Siege. And I've taken Die Hard from the top of the mountain to a bus, mm-hmm. and now I'm sticking it on a boat, and I, I really don't don't mind doing that at all. Under Siege, um, and I think, again, it, it falls within it, where kind of speed, how speed was received. Mm-hmm. It was actually critically received really well. And I think the majority of that is kind of attributed to Tommy Lee Jones 
being um, as amazing as he is in in the movie. And for me, anyway, when pe- when people say Steven Seagal, I tend to think of this film as kind of the pinnacle of, of kind of what he got to. This is about as mainstream as you get with a, with with um, with Steven Seagal. I know you had executive decision, but he was in it for all of five seconds. Um, but I, yeah, Undersea, Die Hard on a boat. Um, terrorists take over um, uh, a battleship, oh, and uh, the the cook, ex Navy SEAL. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just going to call him Stevens again. Ex Navy SEAL uh, Stevens again, um, who is a cook. I also cook um, is aboard, and he is the John McClane character, and he has to take back over the ship away from the terrorists. But the way he does it, of course, is with his stealth training, um, making a bomb out of um, bits and pieces chucked in a microwave, um, and j- and the fastest knife fight I'd seen up until that 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 time the, the end sequence was in him and Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. it, even I'd never seen people hold knives that way um, it was always kind of New York gangs holding switchblades and, and then doing a musical number before they stabbed each other um, but with Under Siege it was kind of these guys know what they're doing they've done this before and they had this stealthy uh, Aikido um, knife fighting style which was so fast paced they kind of looked like they actually looked like real seals or sea lions fighting with sort <laughs> with with knives <laughs> slapping each other around um, but again had had all the kind of trademarks of of, uh, of a Steven Seagal movie with the uh, with the fighting style and the leg breaks and the arm breaks but set so much in that kind of die hard world of uh, um, a terrorist group taking over um, uh, an enclosed space and you couldn't get more enclosed because you can't escape from the boat um, but it was yeah it was it was awesome it was it was actually a well made movie and on the back of it this is the this is the one that I was thinking of um Apparently, nine members of the cast, including Tommy Lee Jones, would then return uh, to star in The Fugitive the following year, directed by Andrew Davis as well, mm. who also directed this. Um, and it was actually this that convinced Harrison Ford to sign up for The Fugitive. Um, I think they'd mentioned Davis as a director, and, and uh, Harrison Ford had seen Under Siege and was really impre- impressed with kind of the way that he'd handled the action. Um, but yeah, it's it's awesome. I, I, I love it. Well, this was the first movie where I really recognized who Tommy Lee Jones was. And because the thing is, Tommy Lee Jones had been working... Same. He, yeah, he had been working for like for a few years, you know, for actually for longer than that. I should say. He, he had been working for like a couple of decades and, you know, TV and in like, you know, in some films beforehand. But this is the first time I really paid attention to him. Um, and then, you know, like, like you said, it all really just started to just really just, un, you know, unravel and then he just blew up the spot. I mean, you know, Fugitive... Blown, he was in Blown Away, The Client, Natural Born Killers. It just, he just kept getting more and more work. And now, Tommy Lee Jones is a household name. Yeah, that knife fight still to this day freaks me out because they were moving fast. And I don't know if those were camera tricks or, you know, or just, it just, it was just, or like they filmed it like them, you know, fighting real slow and then sped it up. No idea. But it was, it was dope. That was like my favorite scene of the whole movie. No, it's cool. Apart from when they wheel out the cake, because as a big Baywatch fan at the time, that was a highlight for me as well. Oh, <laughs> but, but of course. Now, did you ever see the uh, second, the second, the sequel to, uh... <laughs> do you mean, is it called Dark Territory? Yes. Yeah. Under Siege 2, Dark Territory. The movie where he wears a very heavy coat and never sweats once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I, do you know what? I've never seen it. I've never seen it, and and I think I was kind of stung by um, by Speed Two, and I kind of elected never to watch it. So, no, I've never seen. I've never seen. Okay. Um, I I have seen it. I saw it. Now that one I see. I saw the first Under Siege via video. Saw the sequel in the movie theater. I have no words. Because <laughs> the thing is, honestly, it's not that it's that bad. It's not, but it's not that good either. It's just, it's there. <laughs> it's there. And like, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Eric uh, Bogosian. I'm a very big fan of him as an actor. The type of villain that he is doesn't fit the film. It, it for me, it doesn't fit the film. Like, huh. it just, there's something about this movie. It's just, I guess I walked in wanting more, and what I got was just completely different to what I was thinking was going to happen so I, I needed to pull myself out of it and I watched it again I'm like mm, no I just uh, no I, I can't I can't do it it's it's just not for me uh, see the, the the action connoisseur that I am uh, when I saw the poster and realized that it was on a train my brain said that's kind of limiting because to me a train is just this straight passageway and what I love about these movies especially where you've got sort of terrorists involved and they've captured somewhere is that you've got all of these corridors and staircases and, and um, places to kind of sneak around and in my mind it was just Steven Seagal's at one end of the train the baddies are at the other end of the train and he's just got kind of this straight line to go and then I kind of realised that I was thinking about it too much so <laughs> ton of films as always that we probably missed out on you know you probably like you you're you they're listening on your ipod or on your computer or wherever it's like well you know you didn't mention you know the, the rock you didn't mention uh you know hard hard rain no i don't think anybody but me mentions hard rain um yeah. but no i watch hard rain f- for one reason to hear morgan freeman scream we just want the money that's all i watch it for love morgan freeman <laughs> You, you can't go wrong with Morgan Freeman because the rest of them. And I didn't. Talk, I didn't talk about Double Impact either. You know, I I I, I pride myself away from talking about Double Van Double Van Damage Twin. Yeah, man. <laughs> double. Oh, see, I didn't talk about Double Team. No one should talk about Double Team. No. Who? Van Dam, Dennis Rodman, Mickey Rourke as the villain. Once again, Van Dam, Dennis Rodman at the height of his popularity, and Mickey Rourke as the villain. And you knew walking into that movie, if you ever saw it, during that period of time, because Dennis Rodman was uber popular, there would be a scene where Dennis Rodman would have to, like, somehow shoot a free throw. Yeah, just bad. Just bad. And we didn't really talk heavily about the Die Hard films, Die Hard films in the 90s for the simple fact that we went on about Die Hard in the 80s episode. Um, you know, even though For Peace of Me does want to talk about James Evans getting killed in Die Hard 2, that was real foul how he got killed. I know, I know his name is John Amos, but I call him Mr. Evans from Good Times because that's that that's Mr. Evans. But um, well, if you ever you ever want to see a baddie training naked a lot, Die Hard Two is the is the one to go to. If you ever want to see someone stabbed in the eye with an icicle, if you want to see the T one thousand depowered, see that one. If you want to see the 
the most amount of um, movie taglines uttered by Bruce Willis that you could put on a poster. How can the same shit happen to the same guy twice? Uh, this is how I spent Christmas last year. They're, they go on and on. Yes. But it's it's Rennie Harlan. Yeah. So. <laughs> so there you go. It's lo- loosely talked about the fugitive, U.S. Marshals. Uh, you know, I, they, I mean, like I said, there are all types of, um, of, ac- of action movies out there and all types of modes. So, you know, just sit back, relax, and go enjoy some. But the last one I'm going to talk about is a film that I know for a fact very few people watched. It came out in 1997. To me, this is a very, very good film because I actually bumped this up uh, above The Replacement Killers, which I was going to talk about, but I already gave Chow Yun-Fat plenty of love with Hard Boiled, and I wasn't going to talk about his U.S. debut because I do like The Replacement Killers a lot. And that's, that's got a bunch of people in it too, including uh, Danny Trejo from Machete. Anyway, I'm going to talk about a film. Do you, uh, do you know what? He's in um, Marked for Death as well. He's one. He's he's kind of thug number one at the beginning of the movie. He gets. He's the guy that gets tossed into the into the trunk of a car by Seagal in the opening scene. Okay, Lord have Machete. Machete. But um, the film I'm going to talk about is uh, it's called Breakdown. Came out in 1997. It stars Kurt Russell, and basically the premise of the story and I'll give you the premise of the storyline this is off of imdb.com and this storyline premise was written by David Landers Um, Jeff and Amy Taylor are moving to California and must drive across the country when they find themselves stranded in the middle of a desert with hardly anyone or anything around their trip comes to a sudden halt Amy had taken a ride with a friendly trucker to a small diner to call for help, but after a long time, Jeff becomes worried. He finds that no one in the diner has seen or heard from his wife. When he finds the trucker who gave Amy the ride, the trucker swears he has never seen her. Now Jeff must attempt to find his wife who has been kidnapped and is being held for, ran- held for ransom, but who can he trust? I'm telling you right now, if you have not watched this movie watch it it is worth yeah. every single minute of it. there's like lots of suspense it's not a typical action film i enjoy every last minute of this movie not only that acting wise is one of kurt russell's best acting performances and i know a lot of people dog on kurt russell I, I i know they do but this this movie this is the flick to watch and not only that but like jt walsh as as the villain great absolutely great this movie is worth watching i remember me and my friend chris we went to see this it was like on a sunday night the weekend it came out and we went to this one movie theater in dayton ohio it was the dayton mall and it was in cinema number one which is like the biggest theater in the mall at the time now they removed all the theaters from that mall but this was one of those epic screening rooms where like you know the screen is so large it bends wonderful to go see movies at and we were the only two people in there and it's like midnight on a sunday and we watched, we got finished watching this. It was like, how come you know more people don't know about this movie? This movie is great. It made fifty million dollars in the U.S. It only cost like uh, probably like thirty something million to make, but a lot of people still don't know about this movie, and it makes you very paranoid too. But I was like, I'll never travel. I was like, I'll never travel <laughs> on the roads, long distances by myself. I see. I. I it's a gr- it's a great one for for kind of showing well paced tension in a film, um, and kind of use of silence as well because he's got long stretches where he's on his own, um, and it's very reliant on you know the camera telling a story and and uh, and Kurt Russell carries that entire movie because it's so focused on him um, for for such a long time. It is a really good one. I think for me, I probably kind of throw it in with kind of psychological thrillers and stuff like that, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, Hand the Rocks the Cradle and Pacific Heights and, um, 
movies where somebody is pretending to be nice and actually he's really really evil <laughs> not a movie that's been parodied but there are lots of similar kind of road movies where people go missing it reminded me a lot of Duel the old uh, Spielberg movie just before he did Jaws and uh, and then I suppose later before it went very strange at the end Jeepers Creepers was very very similar and there's been a, there's been one recently where it's two guys travelling cross country and they end up naked in a diner or was that just a flashback from my last holiday I'm not sure there may be a flashback from your last holiday no 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 what's the guy's name um, they end up in a cornfield and somebody turns on the lights at night and someone turns on the lights of a combine harvester um oh jeez if you're listening to this, guys, who have seen that movie, please email in at... P- yeah. uh, it will come to me. It will come to me. But Breakdown's a very good movie. That's, it's, um, that's one of those films where you don't, you don't necessarily have to kind of give it any, any genre or you, it, you know it's a good film um, and it can be enjoyed by you know, pretty much anyone, whether you like action or not. Yes. Can you tell the people about uh, some stuff that you got going on and also where they can reach you? Okay. Um, three things, if I may, Sean, if that's okay. Go ahead. Um, one, uh, the, I think the last time uh, we spoke, we did the Planet of the Apes episode and we uh, kind of gave out a few future pro wrestling announcement, announcements. There's been a few changes, but all for the better. Um, we were going to do a show in September, um, but we, we've had an opportunity to do an even bigger show Um if we hold off until October um, so we're our next show is going to be at uh, Wellington Public Hall in Surrey um, on Friday the 28th of October um, and we're going to do a, a Halloween wrestling show so it's FBW Trick or Treat is the name of the show um, we're going to be uh, giving away prizes for best costumes so if you want to cosplay it up and come dressed up please do so because we all will be um, we've got several companies already um, interested in sponsoring us for the event so we we're looking to to make this a really impressive one so if if ever there was a um a show to come and see what we're all about then then do check that out um tickets should be on sale just a month before so kind of tail end of september they'll go on sale so we've got a lot of prep time for this one but myself steve and and lee are really excited about putting it all together but if you want to learn more about um what we've been doing and uh, and future pro wrestling you just go to um, www.fpwuk.blogspot.com um, or you can find us on Facebook um, and it's future pro wrestling and there's a fan page there and there's links to our YouTube page and um, Twitter feed and all that kind of stuff but um, that's the kind of amendment there um, matinee idols We've had, I suppose, a little bit of a hiatus over summer, just um, kind of scheduling uh, conflicts, especially between myself and Vern. But sort of because of that and a few bits and pieces um, that we've all been doing, we've just found it so hard to kind of be able to... And, and the, you know, the, the time difference as well. I mean, God, Sean, how difficult is it sometimes for you and I to sit down and, <laughs> and, and, and kind of sort one of these out? Um, but we did uh, record... Um, a little while ago, um, the Matt and the Idols podcast, we did record a train spotting um, episode. It's about going to run about two hours long, and I've got to say, it was um, it was one of the probably one of my favourite um, kind of recording experiences. It was myself, Joey, Alec, and Vern um, sat down and taking a look back at um, Danny Boyle's train spotting. Um, that should be out by the time this comes out. But if you haven't listened to Matt and the Idols, um, 
and and you like that movie, um, then do check out that episode because it's um, I, I think you're going to like it. Um, and lastly, and I have permission to now announce this, um, and just to say that myself and um, my good friend Mr. Andy Jewett, Mr. Artist Extraordinaire, um, are working together, and we are um, working on a project. Um, so I'm c- uh, co-writing uh, a book with Andy and Andy's doing the art um, and the project is called Drake City and all I've been told I'm allowed to tell you <laughs> is that um, it is a, a love song to 80s action movies and I figured it absolutely fit with this episode so um, we've bought um, a couple of URLs so we should have a website up and running and I'll, I'll kind of shoot details over to Sean so that you can keep up to date but if you know Andy Jewett's work as as uh, both Sean and I do uh, you, you definitely will not be disappointed I've seen a lot of the kind of conceptual character work um, uh, that he's done on it and kind of uh, kind of mock covers and stuff um, we're really really excited I'm having a blast um, kind of doing it we've pretty much finished the first arc um, I've done a, a one-off story as well that will appear in kind of two maybe three story arcs time um, but we're doing lots of world building at this stage but uh, it's it's awesome to finally be be working on a comic book and um and especially with someone as uh, as amazing as andy so keep your eyes out for um for drake city so hopefully it will be coming to you in some format sometime soon there you go that's me i'm a busy bee <laughs> well cool man well listen well matt thank you again for uh, for doing this and uh helping us put a staple on uh, some of our favorite 90s action movies and you know, maybe, you know, if, if we got time again to do another Matinee Idols Month next year, uh, we can do a uh, 2000 set. Oh, dude, it's been a pleasure. And um, we'll move on. We'll move on to the, the decade where I was most busy being a dad and watching Kung Fu Panda. But <laughs> I did I did manage to watch a lot of action movies. So with pleasure, I will come back if you'll have me. Thank you very much, oh, Sean. It's been, it's been cool. Oh, you, you're welcome, man. And if not, we take it back to the 70s. Yeah. And that makes it real challenging. So, uh, so either way, we're going to work it out. But thank you for making this happen. Hey, no problem, man. Well, I, I figured that by the time you finished listening to the end, to you got to the end of the uh, our favorite '90s action movies uh, segment, you probably figure, "Oh, the episode's over. Here comes the closing music." No, you're wrong, because we got more for you, because that's what we do during Matinee Idols Month. And right now on the line, I have co-host of the PKD Black Box and also host of Tales from the Attic, Donnie Salvo. Donnie, how you doing? Good. Yay, I got my list. <laughs> 90s action movies. Well, well, we're not... Am I late? You're, you're late, but that's okay. Uh-huh. We can we can talk about it later, because right now we've got something we've got something more important to talk about, or, some, or, or someone important to talk to. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you heard him on part one and part two of our Planet of the Apes retrospective. He is a talented artist, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Gabriel Hardman. Gabriel, how you doing, sir? Hey, I'm doing good. I, I think I don't like any of the action movies from the 90s, so we're good. You know, <laughs> I don't have anything to talk about. <laughs> That's all right. To each their own. To, to each their own. No worries at all. But what we're here to talk about is, is now that the rise of the Planet of the Apes film has hit the theaters, when we originally recorded the Planet of the Apes, Apes retrospective, the film hadn't been released, but now that it is, we can talk about it. And we're going to talk about a couple other things, too. So we're going to go ahead and get started on our Rise of the Planet of the Apes talk. Um, we'll start with Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel, how did you feel about the film? 
I actually really liked it. I went in skeptical. It wasn't entirely clear how it was going to come off based on the trailer. I mean, the trailers, you know, looked promising, but I I was certainly worried about it. And it it was a little bit more nerve-wracking to go see it because I went to see it with a whole bunch of people who worked on the movie. Mm. So that's always kind of a weird thing because they all want it to be great and sometimes movies aren't great. They were all people who worked in visual effects on the uh, the ape stuff, but I, you know, I really enjoyed the movie. I, I especially, uh, I mean, we could talk about it in more depth after, but especially when it got into uh, the Caesar stuff and you know, and all the stuff among the apes, I, I thought that that's where it really succeeded. I thought this movie was awesome. I really did. I It blew me away. It, it blew me away because I was expecting nothing. You know, I saw the trailers and I was like, okay. Then I saw the giant gorilla jump into a helicopter that was shooting a machine gun at it. And I was like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Just for that alone. But yeah, it really surprised me. The story, the acting, the effects, how everything was put together. It was just unbelievable. I walked into this film like, like the both of you. I, I had my doubts and I and I had my fears. And uh, me and my wife, we went to go, uh, we went to go see it. And and as soon as it started, you have that uh, that cascading shot of of the woods or the forest, and then like the uh, title, we have title. Title pops up on screen, and then it goes away, and we're right into the movie. And you know, no, yeah. no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Nothing overblown or anything like that. They went straight to the film, and once the film started. I was into it nonstop, and I enjoyed this film more than I, than I thought I would. Actually, it is now it's it's kind of like a tie between my number one movie of the summer, between like number one and number two. I can't make up my mind on, on which, but um, I I'm, I was shocked of how how well together this film how well together this film played, um, how nice uh, the story went, um, how nice the, you know the CGI the special effects were. And how just the story itself was just was just great. So, um, but no, we're about to we're, we're going to go ahead and get all all into that now. Now, the film was directed by Rupert Wyatt, um, right? Yeah. Now, what work had he done before doing Planet of the Apes? I think that he had only directed um, he'd only directed one other feature. It was like a smaller thing. I uh, but I mean, everything I heard about him was that he was great to work with, and that he was really, uh, you know, he was really in control of the thing. A lot of times, you know, directors are hired for these because they're, uh, you know, like if you see somebody who was hired to do some direct some big sort of tentpole movie who's only had like one English chamber drama sort of movie under their belt mm-hmm. it's uh it's because the studio thinks they can just push them around you know uh, but i i hear this guy was really in control of this thing and i think it, it showed in the movie it doesn't have a committee like feel as far as like a movie goes like un- unlike say for instance a film like uh, and i don't mean to throw this under under the bus like green lantern um which, right. which has a committee feel to it the only thing i see from Ru- rupert wyatt from my researching right now is is he did a film called the escapist and yes right Right, yeah. I couldn't remember the name. And, I haven't seen it though. And like, he did two shorts too. Oh, okay, cool. And and like, but but for somebody with like, as far as like with that type of track record, to be able to do a film like this with like minimal interruption or interference, I I, I find to be utter, utterly amazing, especially coming for twentieth century twentieth century Fox, um, after like the Wolverine first class debacle. But anyway, that's another story for another day. 
the one thing I think I liked most about the film, besides the character of Caesar and you know and his rise to power, would be the character um, Charles Rodman, the uh, father of Will Rodman, and uh, Charles was played by John Lithgow, or Lithgow, or depending on how you like to pronounce it. It was kind of sometimes it's kind of difficult for me to watch how his character was falling apart due to his Alzheimer's. Especially yeah. toward especially toward the end with the uh, incident where he got all excited because he hopped in the car and he thought he had to get somewhere and come to find out it wasn't his car and then the neighbor came tried to beat him up and then Caesar just said I've had enough and it went buck wild. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, and that was like that was a really powerful moment. I mean, that was that, that was like part. that was when the movie really turned around for me when it when it went from uh, yeah this is kind of working to to a movie that that was impactful and and that made made you care mm-hmm. about what was going on. Oh yeah, and and yeah, and granted, like in the way the movie worked, that neighbor you knew that neighbor would somehow have some type of focal point would be some type of focal focal point in the story. Um, for as many times as they went back to that character. But the look in Caesar's eyes after he decides to take charge of that situation and he's holding um, Charles and you see like the sadness in his eyes, mm-hmm. you know, that's really powerful, especially coming from a P, like a CGI, uh, you know, coming from basically motion cap CGI stuff. I, I think yeah. it's, it's, all, it's just great. It, it's great. That was, it's just one of many scenes that really worked out well. And I'm just glad that the use of CGI in this film, it didn't overpower, it just didn't overpower the movie in itself. Yeah. Well, all of the CG stuff was about performances, you know, and so it, those were even either going to work or not. I mean, there's a certain amount of spectacle as it goes towards the end, but it's really not about giant stuff blowing up even. it's And when it is, it's because our characters are, are you know, in the thick of it. But... Uh, but all that CG stuff was just about capturing performances and making those characters identifiable. Mm-hmm. Hey, Donnie, I got a question for you. Sure. When uh, when Caesar was in uh, what I like to call the the prison, even though it was like the animal shelter for like for apes and uh, and gorillas and stuff like that. He was in the ape Oz. Yes, the ape Oz. Yes, it was like Oz. Yes, it was. <laughs> Wasn't it? Yes, it was. How come Tom Felton keeps playing the role of the asshole? Because he's good at it, I guess. I have no idea. He does, though, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, because, like, we're watching the movie, and my wife is like, boy, I hope Draco gets it. And I'm like, she's like, I know it's not Draco, but he's just really working my nerves right now. And, um, and I, no, just to go back to John Lithgow, I mean, the only thing I saw for this movie was just the, the trailers they played in front of other movies that I saw this summer. I had no idea that John Lithgow was even in it. No clue whatsoever. And I was surprised to see him. And then he was just so powerful, man. He really was. And he certainly has the ability to go like wildly over the top if he, if you know, right. And, and make make some bad choices, but he can also be great, you know. And it's and a lot of that's about how somebody's directed, and you know, I mean, a lot of actors are, can be great actors, but not know how to hit those marks in in a way that's going to be effective for that movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought he did a great job. Now, as far as going back to Ape Oz or or the or the Ape Prison, as it were, the scenes where. 
there's that one pivotal scene where, and, and yes, for those that are listening, we're spo- we're spoil spoiler. It's spo- so can, spoiling. Thank you. Spoiling. spoiling. She almost says spoiler ing. See that, and that's in proper English. Um, yeah, thank you, Donnie. I appreciate that. Uh, Who knew I could come to the rescue with a pronunciation? <laughs> yeah. It, no, it's been that. Thanks. It's been that kind of. Spoiler's like a made-up word from 1997 anyway, though, isn't it? Like, <laughs> is that a real word? I have no idea. None whatsoever. But no, um, this, you know, we're giving spoilers throughout this whole, throughout this whole segment, so just be, be forewarned. But, you know, he's, he's at, uh, Caesar's at the 8 prison, and while at the 8 prison, he meets the, the other uh, apes and, and gorillas, and he gets, um, basically, he gets beat up on, he gets his shirt, you know, he gets his shirt torn, his shirt torn off because he's different. Uh, you know he's been he's been living with humans you know basically you know his entire existence and now he's in the ape population and the ape population basically tells him hey you're not really welcome here or hey you're different i'm going to show you how different you are and when he once again it's one of those scenes where when because I can't remember the ape's name for the life of me, rips off his shirt and throws it on the ground, you know, and like Caesar's like, whoa, okay, I'm definitely not home anymore. And I think it's time for me to change some things. And he ends up, you know, as he becomes smarter and continues to progress, all the things he does to put all those wheels in motion, you know, once again, it's landed by the screenwriting, mind you, but it's just great. Yeah, the the scene... Uh, the, well, just the shot where he took uh, the canisters were uh, with the gas coming out of them, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and rolled them down the hallway. Like in the implication of that, it was such an, a great audience moment. <laughs> I, I, I loved that, you know. And I and I'm very cynical about this stuff. I mean, I rarely care when, especially in a big sum, summer movie. It's very difficult for me to get me to care about this stuff, but I think I have like a soft spot for like revolution movies and you know <laughs> ape revolution movies, and uh, you know I I don't know, uh, but yeah, there, there were a lot of great moments like that. Oh, <clears throat> oh yeah. See, I, I felt like this movie did not get the proper attention, like the other summer blockbusters did. I mean, you knew every little thing, screenshots, yada, yada, about Captain America and Green Lantern and all this other stuff and Thor. But all you heard, like, last year was, oh, they're making another Planet of the Apes movie. Yeah, but it was great that we didn't see all that stuff. Well, no, no, no. I I know, but I mean, like, like, you didn't really see as far as advertising. You know, I mean, they could have kept just showing you the trailers because their trailers were very good. They did not give a lot away in this movie at all. Yeah. Well, they didn't have they didn't have high expectations for this movie. They, um, you know, the they it it way overperformed. I mean, they they uh, it made a lot more money than they expected it to, and um, they thought it was going to be kind of a, you know, a sort of mid range summer movie that you know that may or may not have the chance of of working. And I think that it it really just made money because the movie was good. You know, it it actually it was word of mouth and the the and the uh, the the it made more money over the course of the weekend and uh, and then uh, you know stayed at number one for the second the, the week the week after that because it you know because people actually talked to each other and said hey this is a good movie as opposed to just the idea of going to the movie being shoved down your throat mm-hmm. like with Green Lantern yeah, right. which didn't even make you know which which underperformed you know I mean this this is uh, this is done better as of uh, this recording worldwide it's made two hundred and fifty six million dollars um, with a ninety three million dollar production budget. So um, it's definitely uh, it's definitely it's definitely performed very very well, especially for a film that uh, re- that was released in August. Yeah, no, there were you know I know there were low expectations for it, and that everybody was surprised that it did this well. Yes, and so you go- you think sequel? Yeah, yeah. 
No, yeah. definitely. Yeah. 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 yeah they, Another shadow, huh? Oh, yeah. It, it, it's more than li- it more than likely will happen. That would not surprise me at all. Um, basically, for the simple fact that they did things in the movie to kind of uh, like pay um, pay an homage to like the original you know Planet of the Apes franchise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I liked. I liked those bits. I, I thought that for the most part that was good. Oh yeah, and like the fact that like you see the one scene with the shuttle that's heading to Mars. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh okay, that's cool. That that's you know supposedly a- you know astronaut Taylor going to Mars or whatever. And, yeah. And uh, with the um, you know with the apes getting blasted with water instead of Taylor getting blasted with water, and and you could kind of see, okay, well maybe that's where they learned to uh, torture human subjects and things like that. It, all that stuff just played very well, and it didn't basically instead of like you know, we've seen this with like with remakes when they try to like you know pay homage to like an old film, an older film, or a previous film, yeah. it comes off really corny. Yeah. It didn't play out that way this time. Yeah, I mean the thing that I mean a couple of the things the um particularly like the get your damn hands off me dirty ape thing. I was uh, just going to say know, that, yeah. I didn't I mean at the at the moment that that was happening, I was like, "Oh, please." And, but then like 2 seconds later, that was the first time that Caesar talked and I was like, "Fuck yeah," you know? <laughs> it's like I was completely back in it then, you know? Um right. because <laughs> I mean like it, I, I don't know because I thought that was such an awesome moment that I totally forgave the cheesy uh, callback line. Mm-hmm. The gorilla, his name was Buck. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> first off, they named him Buck, which which really which really cracked me up on because I'm like, where are they trying to pl- where are they really trying to play on here with that name Buck? But I and that's I won't even get into that. But it just the the way he had um where where Caesar had that conversation, it was with the uh, circus baboon, and he was saying how like you know certain he was saying they say well, apes were dumb. He's he was having a conversation like, look, apes are dumb, and he was like, you need to understand that. And so Caesar was like, "That's okay." He's like, "I got an idea," and he found a, right. he found a way to basically get it all, you know, ape, baboon, you know, gorilla, all on his oh, side. Oh yeah, that, yeah, that was with the orangutan. Oh, orangutan. Thank you. Yeah, it yeah. was the orangutan. Yeah. Yes, you're right. You're yeah, because right. that orangutan was great. The, the the visual effects on that that guy were perfect. Yeah. Um, the it looks so much. I mean, and trust me, I like I go. You know, my wife worked at the LA Zoo for for years uh, studying uh, the chimps and work with the orangutans and stuff and so she knows a lot about this stuff by proxy I've ended up knowing a lot about this stuff <laughs> like and she was very impressed by it, especially with the orangutan and the way they handled it yeah I'm kind of like at a loss at a loss for words because it's the type of film where and I normally don't go back to the movie theater to see a movie anymore it's one of those things where yeah. once it comes out on video yeah I'll watch it again but this is a film that I I'm more than willing to go pay to go see again. No right. no hesitations at all. I would do it. Like the story beats in this movie were just absolutely perfect. They really were. I mean from be- I mean it started off kind of slow but like you yeah, said, I mean, like, I, I can complain about something. I mean, okay. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I I was a little on the fence for the first like third of the movie. I mean, a, a lot of the you know, uh, a lot of the stuff, the James Franco stuff, was a little phony to me. I mean, it's it's hard for me to buy him as the scientist. It didn't bother me as far. I mean, it didn't ruin the movie for me. It wasn't like a huge problem. But he's just he, you know. Franco's just, he's kind of a goofy guy, and he doesn't really, like, convey a, a sense of, 
of the seriousness or whatever, or of I don't know. I didn't. I had a hard time buying him as a scientist, but um, <laughs> but it, it didn't. It seems to me like I mean, the best he's been in something was that 127 Hours movie where where he cuts off his arm, mm-hmm. and in that movie he's basically just acting like real life James Franco. I mean, he's just sort of a goofy guy who who's kind of going along and doing shit. I mean, I I, I worked on the the last Sam Raimi Spider Man movie, so he was around on set a lot, and I, I know him in the vaguest way in real life, and so it's just it it's it's hard for me to buy him as that even though he is a smart guy it it's hard to get i don't know i didn't i didn't buy that as much as i I felt like the casting could have been better with that but i got over it you know it wasn't it wasn't really the biggest deal in the world but i got to play my favorite game (laughs) how stoned is james franco in this scene yeah yeah because let me tell you something that that scene where after they introduced um caesar to the redwoods and then all of a sudden it's it's five years later yeah, and Caesar's all the way on the top, and he comes down, and, and James Franco and uh, Frida Pinto are having a, a picnic, and and Caesar comes down there and jumps on, and and you know is playing around with him. Man, his uh he was high as hell during that scene. His eyes were slit and red, man. <laughs> high as hell in that scene. And there were some scenes where he looks, where his character looks very tired. His eyes look very drawn in. He looks sleep deprived. But at the time of the scenes, I'm like, should he be sleep deprived? I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not saying that to be mean, because once again, I'm entrenched in the film, so I'm okay. It's all yeah, right. Yeah, totally. You know, totally. it's okay. I'm all right. And once again, how they played, how they played the film into the fact that when you go back to the original Planet of the Apes movies, there aren't a lot of humans. Some still, some still survived, but. You, you wonder, it's like, okay, well, how did the human race get, get wiped out? And it all came when they were um, putting, a, they were testing Rocket. It, that was the, that was the chimps, the chimps, it was Rocket, if I remember right. Remember uh-huh. right? Yeah, they were, they were testing Rocket, and one of the uh, members of the team got sick. I forget the actor's name. He's, he always plays that guy. And, yeah, and, right. and uh, he was a dude from uh, Tyler Labine, wasn't that his name? Yeah, I think so. Or no, yeah, am I wrong? No, that is Tyler Labine because he played Robert. Fra- he's Robert Franklin. That's right. He was yeah, Robert. he was the dude from um, Reaper. Reaper, and and he had that show With, on, on TV. On, C- yeah, on CBS. Yeah, he was canceled already or whatever. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yes, yes. And, and he is always the same guy in everything you see. And he played that guy who got sick, and you know nobody could find him, and he he spread he he helped spread disease to the neighbor, and then the neighbor spread the disease because he's a pilot, and <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, well that's a good smart way to get rid of the human race. Okay, cool. You know that I'm like that's a nice little you know plot point right there. Excellent. They you know, they just found ways to tie everything together, and it didn't really come off contrived, and that made me happy. Well, see, I'm not as big a fan as as you are, Gabe, so I don't think I really had a lot to a lot invested in the movie yeah well you know i, you I mean know, i remember I felt- seeing the original uh with charlton heston when i was a kid and then i don't think i've ever seen any of the sequels i mean listening to you guys talk about them though i, I was almost on amazon i'm gonna tell you that right now <laughs> you guys were getting me excited but i did i um didn't really have like as, as much history with it now how far into the future was the charlton heston movie supposed to be uh, it's a, it's like thousands of years in the future, and I mean they they clearly don't. It's not like this is a re, this is really a prequel to those movies. It's more like it's restarting the whole thing. You okay. know, I mean, I, I think that um, because it doesn't. I mean, it's and it's too complicated to even get into. You know, the there's 
oh, I don't even want to go into you know. There's well, there's when you guys are talking about the timeline, right? And the only thing I kept thinking about was Hollywood in the seventies. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing that was going through my mind. Like, is it? That's the only way that timeline would make sense, right? Is yeah. Well, yeah. it's it it all it doesn't even really make sense. It's just that they kept making stuff up as they went along, you know. <laughs> so I mean, so it it's a you know, it's it's not very consistent. But I don't think there's any way you can really look at this as like it's a direct prequel to to the Charlton Heston movie. It's like it's restarting it. You know, well, I not even like the Star Trek movie because that was kind of a, well, that was um, an alternate soft. Yeah, that was an alternate yeah. universe type thing. I mean, this is like just restarting the franchise, and then you know maybe stuff like the um, the shuttle to Mars would you know pay off in a later movie, and they if if they continued to make the movies. And we'd somehow get to that world of the Charlton Heston one, but I don't. I don't think it's like it's not. You can't make a direct relationship with it. I don't think. And and it makes up for that awful Burton Apes movie. Yeah, we don't even have to think about that. Either. No, we don't. <laughs> and we're better off for. It. As far as me being a, a fan of it, you know, I love those movies, but I mean, this to me doesn't, it was just another movie I went to that, that I ended up really liking, you know, I don't really feel like it's this, it, you know, like it's directly related to those other movies. I just, I like those other movies. I like the world of that stuff. And this is just this, uh, this is this other thing that, that's pretty different. And, uh, and I just really like this movie. You know, I might have liked this movie or not liked the movie, but it, I don't feel like me being a fan of the, the 60s and 70s movies has that much to do with it. Okay. Okay. Cause I know as being a fan of Star Wars growing up in that era, that when I saw The Phantom Menace, I came out of that theater going, this is some bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And I was ready to call Lucas up right away. Yeah. Start talking yeah. some shit, but. right? But that's that's supposed to really be a prequel and really be in the same world, and it's the same people who are making it, and it's the, you know, I mean, that's different than this, which is <laughs> really divorced from the other stuff. And also, those movies are terrible and uh, unwatchable, and this was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this was pretty good. <laughs> with all with all the things that we've talked about so far, and we're about to move on to our next thing, but. How we've talked about all these things that have made the movie, you know, entertaining and good and, and great for us to watch. We haven't even had to mention the, you know, the battle scene um, as we're trying to get to the redwood forest um, right. uh, toward toward the end of the film. To me, that's how good the movie is. Is that you don't even have to talk about that part where they're trying to basically get home. And on the way home, they're making sure that they bring everybody with them. They go to the zoo. They, you know, they, I mean, they go everywhere. Yeah. They travel through the streets. They're throwing spears. I mean. That was crazy. Yes, it with was. the animal control officer. <laughs> when he looked up. I was like, oh, shit. That, that was awesome. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was awesome. You know, all of that. And, and how you see this tension. You also see this tension between Caesar and Rocket where there are moments where Caesar or like Caesar's and you can see this if they you want to use this later on where Caesar's way and Rocket's way they're going to end up colliding because there was a part where right. where Rocket was about to take out um 
was about to take out uh, James Franco's character, and Caesar's like, no, you know, get back up. I got this. But then there's that other time where Jacobs was in the helicopter hanging on for dear life, and and Caesar walks up, looks back, and nods, his, you know, and signals his head, and here comes Rocket to push to push the helicopter over. So right. so that they work together. You know, it's going to be one of those things. They work together when they have to, but when it comes down to it, they probably they really don't see eye to eye on things at times. Um, I mean, that, well, Caesar even stopped them from killing cops on the bridge. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but he, he just wanted them to get to where they were going. Yeah, but he you know, yeah. he made sure that Jacobs got it. And although, and I will honestly admit, because I'm like, you know, like for, for all the films I see, you know, on, on average, I'm like, okay, there's a good chance this black dude's gonna die in this movie, no matter what movie I see. Um, <laughs> yeah. that dude deserved it, and I wasn't mad. <laughs> I wasn't mad. I'm like, yeah, you deserved it, dog. Bye. <laughs> you know, you deserved it. I'm not mad at all. Um, well, they did really, really try, try hard to make him a bad guy. I, I mean, it, I felt like that was a little... I mean, they they went they went pretty far with that. You know, I mean, like, it, there there was some inconsistencies in that stuff with, with him. And he... I don't know. I feel like if I get into it, that I'm just picking it apart. And that's what everybody accuses me of with everything. And I actually really liked this movie. So, like... We're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about something that we're all excited about. Once again, it's in conjunction with Planet of the Apes. Come to find out, Mr. Gabriel Hardman will be doing a four-issue Planet of the Apes miniseries for Boom Studios. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm co-writing it uh, with my wife, Karina, we're, uh, and I'm drawing it as well. We're super excited about it. Um, it's basically, it takes place in, uh, in the world of the, the classic Planet of the Apes movies. It's set right before the Charlton Heston movie. We, we introduce a new character who's uh, a guerrilla general character, Alron, who he's a war hero and he's accused of murder and, uh, and you know, ape shall not kill ape. So he, he's convicted and sent to a sort of devil's island prison where he uncovers a conspiracy that's, uh, that's going to like, you know, tear apart ape society. And he has to get out of the prison and try to stop it. And the only person he, uh, his, his only ally is, uh, is the younger Dr. Zayas. It's, it's a sort of political thriller with a lot of action and action adventure stuff. And it's going to be super fun. It's been we've ha- been having a great time working on it. It's it's great to be able to. I mean, I've had I've wanted to do a Planet of the Apes comic forever, and different times that there've been apes comics and whatever. I've always, it, it, you know, you know, with a lot of licensed comics, you you know, you feel like they're not always the best representation of the of the thing. It doesn't necessarily give you the feel of that world, and uh, and like. Everything I want to do with this is to to make it feel like making it make an accessible story that that you could read whether or not you are super into these these movies, but also make it totally feel of that world and be something that that you know doesn't hit the false notes that a lot of uh, licensed stuff does. But I'm having a great time doing it. That's great because I'm I'm seriously I'm really really stoked to like to to read this for the simple fact that I've seen some of the covers for it, and it, and it, it reminds me of those old 
school uh, Marvel magazine Planet of the Apes books. Right. Yes. And like <laughs> that gets me real hype. It gets me real hype because those are the types of books where I forgot about those for so long and then I went back to them and you can really see the good, the great and sometimes the ugly as far as artwork goes, but there's a lot of there's just like a lot of beautiful things in those magazines and and like when I see when I see those covers it takes me back to that. And I know with you and Karina working on the book together, I you know, I, I know it's gonna be good. But speaking of which, what's it like working together, you know, the husband wife team thing? How's that how's that like? I it's good. I mean, we've been working together on things, you know, for quite a while. I mean, there's also, you know, there's several uh, creator-owned projects or a couple of creator-owned projects that I just haven't finished drawing yet, so they, you know, they haven't come out. But we've been writing stuff together for a while, and um, uh, we actually just wrote um, together, and I drew uh, a an eight uh, an eight-page uh, story that that came out in Double Feature. It's a uh, it's it's like an app um, that uh, Tim Seeley and Mike Norton were responsible oh, yeah, their for. Studio. And, yeah, and Four Star Studios, and they uh, there's a, there's a double feature app for you know for iPad and Android and everything, and there, and you can also get the PDF from uh, from their website uh, doublefeaturecomics.com, and uh, that's that's called our story is called The Liar. It's in action. Um, it's in double feature action number two. Anyway, if if you're if anybody's interested in seeing uh, something else that Karina and I collaborated on in that way, but um, but it's it's good. I mean, uh, the collaboration is good. It's you know when you're uh, when you're working on something under a deadline it, the the fact that she's working from home now doing uh, doing freelance stuff uh doing other writing uh and i work from home so we're both here all the time there's never really a a demarcation for you know working <laughs> or not working you know you know so we do tend to work on stuff a lot nice. but uh so far it's been great i mean so far we've always worked together well on stuff and um and it's 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 been a lot of fun so you know i mean i, I don't really have any complaints about it Except that maybe we don't ever stop working, but you know, <laughs> that's not a complaint. I never stop working anyway. I mean, this is you know, I mean, I I I, I do a lot of stuff. Well, I I, I hear that pencil moving right now. Yeah, <laughs> no, seriously, there's a page of Planet of the Apes sitting right in front of me. Um, but but you you've got a great company to work with too because uh, they you know, for all the licensed properties they've had, they've treated with a hundred percent respect. You know? Yeah, and the um, the ongoing Planet of the Apes series that they're doing is is really good, right, and right. Uh, and I was really impressed by that. That was a lot of why. I mean, we approached them. I mean, obviously, you know, both of us are fans, and you know, we approached them about doing it. They had called me at some point, like before that series came out, and asked if I could uh, I could do covers, which I, I couldn't at the time because I was still under the Marvel exclusive. But I at the time I was like, hey, maybe let me write a story and uh, I'll draw it, you know. And they were like, oh yeah, that sounds great. And I was like, yeah, they're not going to let me do that. But I kept, you know, we kept running into them at cons and stuff, and uh, and I was like, hey, let me pitch a pitch a thing. And uh, they're like, well, we could do a mini series. And so we pitched them a mini series, and it just went really well. You know, we pitched it. It got approved by Fox. It just kept moving along, and uh, and it's it's been very exciting. And yeah, yeah, and the other stuff they've done is great too. I mean, that that ongoing Planet of the Apes series. After reading that, that was like what convinced me that this was worth doing. That they were actually doing good work with the license. Now, if you could get them to work on like a t- airtight buck rogers tv series comic that makes up that that makes up that makes up for the bad second season of buck rogers if you could get find somebody to get on that i would be very happy i'd be cool what are you talking about dude that had hawk in it 
Hawk. And, 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 and what's his name? What's his name? Took his head off and put it on a rock. No. And he was able to talk. No. Oh, yeah. And Twicky right. got a voice, a new voice box. No, that for yeah. half a season. That was terrible. That, was that wasn't Mel Blank. That, that, that was. The, that well, was that's why they brought him back in the second half of the season. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, what about Doctor Theopolis? What, what 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 happened to him in the second season? Yeah, I think they he stayed back on Earth. Yeah, they left they left him in New Chicago with a deep dish pizza and was like, we out. <laughs> yeah, we tried. We actually just tried to watch uh, the first episode of the second season of uh, of Buck Rogers. Oh, it's horrible. Netflix. It's pretty bad. No, yeah. pretty bad. But what's funny no, is, is but what's funny is if you watch a couple of those episodes, um, you get to see. Um, Oh, what's his fa- what's his, what's his name? I always want to call him Pedro Serrano, or I want to call him Black President. Um, from from the you know he was also in the unit, uh, the brother from the unit. Okay, he is. Oh oh oh, Dennis Den- Dennis Haysbert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw him in there too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's like every once in a while he's pushing a button and he'll say something. Or something came on screen and that's it. You don't see him again <laughs> for like four episodes. Yes, every time I see him, like we were watching me and my friend Jack were watching these episodes probably like about seven eight months ago, and it was season two. And we were torturing ourselves because, like, this is just really bad Star Trek. But let's watch. And and there he was. And Jack got up out of his chair. Was like, "Black President, right there." <laughs> and I and I just I just got up and I just left the room. I said, "I really can't deal with you right now." I just can't. <laughs> that's funny. So, but no. Before we wrap up this episode, um, Gabriel, is there anything that you want the people to know as far as the Planet of the Apes book, um, when they can get it, and all that good stuff? Yeah, it's um, it's being solicited in the current uh, the current issue of previews right now. So if uh, you know if you're interested in the book, you know, go to your retailer, ask them to order a copy. Um, I would very much appreciate it. You know, and I and I I promise you a book that's uh, that's going to be awesome. There you go. Well, you got my you've got my vote. Believe you, me. you got mine too. So you know you're good to go. And I'm serious. If, hey, if anybody's listening to this episode right now, if you know anybody at Boom that is willing to do a Buck Rogers comic book, I mean, even if Buck visited the planet of the Apes, think about that crossover in a Granite, Univ- <laughs> Granite Universal and 20th Century Fox probably wouldn't work well together. So, so scrap that. Anyway, go pre-order a copy of Betrayal of the Planet of the Apes. You will not be disappointed. Trust me, you will not be disappointed on that at all. Uh, check your previews. Go to your comic, local comic book shop. Hop online. Do whatever you have to do to pre-order this book and support it. Um, Donnie, um, do you, is there anything that you want to say before we uh, close out? No, I'm psyched about. Uh, I really, I am. I'm psyched about the book. I, I like your work a lot, Gabe. I gotta say. Oh, thank you. Thank you very and, much. And uh, I was a huge Atlas fan. Well, and, uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember at Super Show we were talking about. You know, you you were having the time of your life getting to getting to draw just apes and Kirby crazy monsters and stuff. So, but. Uh, but I was, yeah, I was a big fan I've of that tur- series. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's weird that I've turned into the, the guy who draws apes. I, I don't know if that was ever But I seem, I seem to be good at it. So, you know, what can I say? Uh, more power to you, sir. More power to you. Well, Gabriel, thank you so much for being on this call. And uh, thank you for coming back once again to bring us back to the planet of the apes. Yeah, thanks. Anytime.
And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard. Um, one thing I have noticed when going through the list and kind of reading up on a lot of the movies that I wanted to talk about, unbeknownst to me, the majority of the, movie, the movies that I liked, and especially in the early 90s, were horrendously trimmed for UK audiences. So as a result of all of this kind of research, I'm going to have to go back and replace all of my copies with Region 1 stuff now. So you you are responsible, Sean. I will be charging you. Um, <laughs> it's it, Yeah, it's it just, just ridiculous. You know, it's, it's kind of like 10 minutes of fight scenes and, and bits some pieces just to, to kind of sneak them into that 15 um, rating over here because um, we're sensitive you know with the riots that we're so good at yeah we're, we're clearly clearly need so much help being violent you know I've got a story about a film that I've I had to go and see another movie to kind of uh, um, rid the memory of, of how bad the movie I saw before was is there has there ever been a movie that's been so bad you've walked out of the theatre yeah and I saw it for free I walked out of the first 15 minutes of Battlefield Earth. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know, I, I, I even because like I had a friend, you know, I had a friend of mine's like, yo, I got free passes to movies, and like, and at that period of time, everything that was out at the time that I wanted to see, I had already, you know, I saw it. I was like, okay, well, I haven't seen this Battlefield Earth movie. I've seen some trailers for it. I like sci-fi. I don't know if this is gonna be any good, but I'll go watch it. Yeah, it's supposed to be based off a book by L. Ron Hubbard. I'm like, okay. And, you know, because I don't really know about the whole Scientology thing yet. You know, I heard about it, but I'm like, eh. I'm like, you know what? I'll go in. I'll just go watch this. I got 15 minutes in. And I was like, I'm out. Right. And look, I sat through an entire viewing of Wing Commander just so I could see the episode one trailer. OK, I sat through Wing Commander and like that movie is just dreadful. OK, <laughs> dreadful. I will be the first to attest to that. All because I wanted to see an episode one trailer because that's what the internet told you. Like, ain't it cool news? It was like, yeah, you go see Wing Commander. It's attached with the Star Wars episode one trailer because even 20th Century Fox knew, look, this film is going to be awful. We need to convince people to go see this movie. Oh, yeah, attach the episode one trailer to it. Yeah, they'll go see it. So I saw the episode one trailer. I was like, yeah, it's kind of cool. All right, hopefully this will be a decent movie. Well, little did we know later on. But anyway, that's the whole another story for another time. You know, Wing Commander starts, I'm like, this is just, Wow. How is this possible? How? But yeah, sorry. Battlefield Earth, one of the few movies I have ever sat. I sat through 15 minutes. I said, this is just dreadful. And it's awful. It's terrible. And I was like, I'm out. And I, I saw that for free. Free. But I mean, I, I've, I've never walked out of a movie. I've fallen asleep. There's only a few I've fallen asleep in the middle of. I fell asleep during Nell with uh, Liam Neeson and Jodie Foster because I couldn't hear her say Tay in the way, Tay in the way anymore. Um, I, I, fell asleep during, I fell asleep during Dangerous Minds um, because um, it, I, it wasn't for me. Um, but I went to see Beverly Hills Cop 3. Oh. Uh, yeah. And we uh, we got out. We, we I didn't walk out. Didn't fall asleep. I just couldn't 
believe what I was seeing with Eddie Murphy in the mascot outfit. Um, and then we went to see um, The Chase with Charlie Sheen straight after to just kind of cleanse the palate. And it was anything was better than Beverly Hills Cop 3 um, at that point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was that was the, the downturn, the, the, the Eddie downturn. Before he was back up again and back down again, back up again, back down. You know, it's kind of amazing how many ups and downs both Eddie Murphy John, and John Travolta have had. Yeah. Think about it. Like their careers up, down, 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 stay, drop, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. <laughs> it's 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 amazing. But yeah, I'm sorry, I, I digress. But no, no, no. But um, yeah, speed. Every I can't get in a lift without thinking of speed, and not in a bad way. It just excites me. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, anytime. Again, maybe it's SWAT gear. Maybe I've got a fetish thing about SWAT gear. Maybe I have to find a SWAT club. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> Um, yeah, speed. Speed's awesome. All right. And again, it's another one that I went to see with my dad. Um, and I think probably on the back of the trailer, it had those elements that at the time we were both kind of riffing on. And, um... Ooh. I'm sorry, I don't want to... My, my wife accidentally... No worries, turned, no. No, my wife accidentally turned on alarm to her car. Let's go ahead. Oh! <sighs> I thought that we were going to have an action scene then. No, no, no. I thought we were going to have an, an, an impromptu action scene. That would have been really good. <laughs> You've interrupted an, an intruder of some kind, and so you double barrel in it. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yes, and I would like to say right now that your new microphone sounds great. Yeah, guess what? What? This is the old microphone. It's Daryl's fucked up connection. <laughs> Because I used my new microphone, which was a piece of shit, and I didn't like it. <laughs> so this is the old shit. Ooh. So Daryl can lick my balls, <laughs> and I can't wait to tell him when he comes back from Baltimore. Yeah, man, you sound fantastic. There, you know, I, boy, I tell you, there, there's sometimes, man, I'll start to like listen to like nothing's on, and like I have to stop, and I get mad, and I just want to, so and I, I want, yeah. I want to throw my i my iPad, my iPod, not because of the podcast, it's just because. Like, first you'll sound like this, and be like, yeah, you know, I was watching. Yep, for no reason at all. And I, it's got to be Daryl's dumbass connection. That's the only thing I could think of. Because <laughs> I, I was using it. I recorded uh, nine Tales from the Attic today, uh, this weekend, and they all sound... I mean, like, if anything, I may even sound too damn loud. No, you sound great, man. I can, look, I can always tone it down. I can always, I'd rather tone it down than turn it up. Right, exactly. Y- you know.